Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, May 19, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, No Shot Josh. Good morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Can you be the newsman or the sports person for a second this morning? Uh, Sure. So did the Gamecocks win last night? They didn't play. Okay, they rained out. Yep. Did the Braves win last night? They didn't play. Okay, they rained out as well? Uh, No, it was just an off, okay, off, off day in the schedule. For the, for the Braves. Yep. Uh, okay. So, so the, yeah, that's the sports. That's Google. it. So, so the um, well, be the Gamecocks will play two today. Yeah, a doubleheader. Yeah. First one uh, is at three o'clock. Is first pitch two forty-five airtime. If you're in the Florence area on ninety-six point three FM. We we need we need somebody giving us a Clemson update because I just don't. Right. I mean, I'll, I'll level with you. I mean, I know exactly when the Gamecocks play every football game imaginable. I can almost uh, recite the entire tw- upcoming schedule. I can almost do the same for Clemson in football. Right. I mean, in football, it's a little bit like keep your friends close and your enemies even closer. But in baseball, I can't tell you when the Gamecocks are playing, much less when uh, <laughs> when Clemson's playing. So I'm not trying to be uh, such a homer here and so one-sided. I just don't keep up with baseball. Um, I, as you would expect, like I do uh, football. I, I bet I could. Well, I probably could do it team by team, or excuse me, game by game, weekend by weekend. But I could get it pretty close for both teams. I'll tell you what I could do. I could tell you when the Clemson Tigers are playing the teams they have a chance to lose to. <laughs> you know, I I mean, you that, that's kind of the game. I mean, well, you're playing Duke, so right. uh, playing Florida State. Ah, okay. Uh, playing. You see where I'm headed? I mean, uh, do they play Georgia this year? Do they? You know, uh, it, it, it's it's a football state. I mean, we're intensely loyal uh, to college football. We yesterday kind of talked a little bit about, and and you know, we'll get to other topics as the show progresses. But yesterday, someone asked me. Well, you talking about malpaparisms. You know, I said, it's not malpaparisms, dude. It's malapropisms. <laughs> Come on. It's not. I mean, it's not. Do a little better than that. If I mean, you're going to get the uh, word to describe misusing words, yeah, at least get, get that one right. right. I would get that one right. <laughs> so um, so the malapropisms. And, I, and we, I don't know if we agreed. I declared Archie Bunker the greatest uh, abuser of the English language in human history. Not that he used, I mean, he didn't mispronounce words a lot. He just used the right word in the wrong context over and over and over again. Um, you know, don't you ever say anything suppository about my country ever again uh, in your life. There's kind of a website. You could Google Archie Bunker mangling, you know, the English language. So, um, and the reason we kind of went down that road is, I'll give you an example. And this is the media today. So, um, Jeff Stein is an economics reporter for the uh, Washington Post. Uh I don't know that he's won a Pulitzer Prize, but if he writes long enough, I'm sure he will at the good old um, Washington Post. So yesterday, Jeff Stein tweeted um, a quote provided to him by the, uh, the office of Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman. And here's the quote. Um, well, I mean, I won't read the quote. I want you to hear it here in a second. <laughs> but, but Stein retweeted later in the day yesterday, um, and I'll read this verbatim. Um, this is Jeff Stein at, excuse me, Je- at Jeff Stein underscore WAPO. Yesterday, I tweeted this quote provided to me by the Senator's office without checking it against the video. That was my fault though. It captured his meaning. I deleted the tweet since some of the words in the quote were inaccurate. Um, let's go to the quote. I, I know it's early Josh, but I asked you this morning, can we, um, go to a quote? So Stein basically says, but he quoted, he tweeted exactly what the Fetterman office said to tweet. And we'll get to that, 
you know, in, so in a minute. So the staffer wrote the tweet probably, the, the, and, but and they attached it, video of the senator well, here, saying whatever he was saying. Here's the way it goes down. Okay. Fetterman made a fool of himself. I mean, he's incoherent. I mean, it's the party of cognitive issues. You know, you got Feinstein, you got Biden, now you got Fetterman. Uh, Feinstein and Biden are old, dealing with, you know, issues that a lot of older citizens deal with, dementia in particular. Fetterman is recovering, we think, uh, from a stroke, uh, a pretty severe stroke. Uh, The medical professionals in Pennsylvania said that within 30 days, he'll be back to normal. I mean, do you remember this? When, oh, yeah. when he had the stroke and they were concerned about, you know, is he going to be able to, cons- you know, to serve in the Senate? And they said, I'll give him 30 days. Um, you know, once again, the politic uh, corrupting the medical profession. I, I don't say I love that, but with the arrogance of some of these medical professionals to lecture to me about what I had to say about the vaccine or not. And, and fellow doctors and physicians are saying, you know, that, um, that Fetterman in 30 days will be back to normal. Um, what is normal? I'll tell you this, he gave a press conference yesterday with one of these hoodies on, and I've got a name for him. It's Shrek Balboa. <laughs> Shrek Balboa? Well, I mean, we, 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 John Stewart says that James Brown and Bob Dylan had a baby. And as you can imagine, interracial same-sex couples in the 60s, uh, 50s, probably not so popular. Uh, but, but he says that baby is Bruce Springsteen. Um, so, so I'm just saying... That Shrek and Rocky Balboa had a baby. And I'm convinced that baby is John Fetterman. Now, now where the height comes from, uh, you know, they're genetic anomalies, right? I mean, <laughs> I statistical anomalies yeah, happen, sir. and they're, oh, they're yeah. easy to explain. Sure. I mean, you know, 100% of people yeah, voted no in, a, in a nursing home in Wisconsin. Yeah, uh, yeah you know, um, they don't know they voted. They don't remember voted, but they all voted for, for Joe Biden nonetheless. But anyway, um, reputable economics reporter Jeff Stein tweeted exactly what the Fetterman office provided. And then I guess he listened to the video. I guess someone in his circle said, hey, Jeff, you know that tweet you sent out? Yeah. Um, you heard that video, man? No. Why? I mean, the Fetterman office wouldn't mislead me. We're on the same team. We're the good guys, right? I mean, we're the good guys. I'm a reporter of the Washington Post. He's a liberal senator from Pennsylvania. Why would they ever try and mislead me? Well, I mean, you know I'm saying that with a high degree of sarcasm. So so let's go to the exact um, uh, performance of Senator John Fetterman at the banking committee. Now, he's um, he's interviewing, uh, well, let me back, he's questioning Greg Becker, who is the former CEO of the former Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, you know, uh, I think this followed Senator Kennedy from Louisiana when he asked him about hedging, you know, in some of the uh, portfolio, some of the mismanaged portfolio in other words we remember the part about silicon valley bank they didn't hedge i mean they invested heavily in um in investments that would do extremely well in a low interest rate environment uh kennedy kind of gets becker to admit that one of the reasons we didn't hedge hedge costs money i mean if you're hedging you you know it costs money i mean it does there's a certain price you pay and it comes off your bottom line and ceos are compensated based on you know, what the stock price does, what the profitability of the company is. And Kennedy basically said, did you not hedge because you didn't know any better? Or did you not hedge because you felt the hedges would influence your compensation? That's kind of an interesting uh, back and forth. But anyway, um, I, I doubt Jeff Stein from Washington Post is listening to Wake Up Carolina. But, um, but when Stein tweeted exactly what the Fetterman office said, I just wonder if the Fetterman office quoted it verbatim.
Now they have it's in a guaranteed a guaranteed way to be saved by no again by no matter no by by how you know so it's it's you know isn't it appropriate that the those kinds of this kind of control should be more stricter or should we just go on and start bailing and sailing whoever bank regardless of how how there's their conduct is shouldn't you have a working requirement after we sail your bank with billions of your bank because they seem to be more pre- preoccupied uh, when than SNAP uh, and requirements for works for hungry people, but not about pr- protecting the tax the tax papers, you know, that will bail no matter whatever does about a bank to crash it. What? Oh, <laughs> everything's fine. But it's sad. It is. Gosh. I mean, it's sad what Democrats will do to maintain control of government. I mean, this guy has no business. I mean, it, think it's of this guy. Gosh, that, that makes me feel sympathetic. There's a the hundred of him in the world. I mean, he's an albino cheetah. There's a hundred of him in the world. Wow. And they're making some of the biggest decisions of any government in the history of mankind. You could argue that John Fetterman is one of the 100 most important people on the planet i'm not saying he is but you could make a legitimate making argument consequential decisions that affect the all 100 members of the united states senate or are the top one tenth of one percent important people on the planet or are they more important than the ceo of blackrock i don't know the ceo of blackrock doesn't vote for anything i mean he buys a lot of votes but he doesn't vote for anything uh, per <laughs> se but but john fetterman is one of 100 people given the opportunity to vote on behalf of the most powerful government the world has ever known. And he can't put a coherent sentence together. And, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to mess with Shrek Balboa because there's some, there's some, there's some sadness here. Right. I mean, there really is. Um, but, but the people of Pennsylvania are okay with that. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the party of power in Washington is, I mean, nobody is, is, is a little bit alarmed or nervous by that. I mean, I'm talking to the Democrats. I mean, the Republicans didn't vote him. We tried to get Dr. Oz in there. <laughs> and I guess he would have counseled and lectured and, you know, um, done what Dr. Oz does in the United States Senate. But it's just bizarre to me. It's bizarre to me that the media doesn't challenge, that we don't lead the news every night with uh, Biden's cognitive issues and Feinstein's cognitive issues. And now we found out yesterday that, that Feinstein did have some condition that included inflammation of the brain and the brain stem. Um, they denied that. She basically said she had, you know, some sort of um, head cold or something. Well, now it's being affirmed or confirmed by um, a physician that who treated her in California that um, that she had. I can't think of the condition. It's some medical condition. Uh, it's 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 this inflammation of the brain. Um, she's eighty nine years old. She's in a wheelchair. She's w- for all practical purposes, let's be fair here, mentally and cognitively impaired, significantly impaired. Um, you got Biden. I mean, I guess that Biden and Fetterman and Feinstein stood beside one another and you said, which one of them three have their feces most consolidated? I mean, Biden may win that. I mean, in all honesty, you got mm. Feinstein behind door number one. You got Fetterman, Shrek Balboa behind door number two. And you've got, you know, Biden behind door number three. 
and you open door number one and you give Fetterman, well, let's do this. Behind door number one, you got Bob Dylan. Behind door number two, you got James Brown. Behind door number three, you got John Fetterman. Behind door number four, you've got uh, Joe Biden. Behind door number five, you got Diane Feinstein. Give me Dylan and Brown. I mean, I think I could understand them. I mean, I know that James Brown is dead, but I mean, you know the point I'm trying to, to get across and make. And it's just, I mean, the Democrats are just whistling Dixie past the graveyard. I mean, nothing to see nothing here. Nothing to see here. Everything's I mean, normal. What are you talking about? You you really are. Just trust us. There's this, hey, there's this guy on the radio in South Carolina who says that he thinks Biden has some cognitive issues. Oh, yeah, and he thinks something's wrong with Fetterman. Now, now I may give him Feinstein. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I may go along with him uh, with Feinstein, but, but this is what these people are willing to do to be in control of government. Anything. Everything. That, that's the point I want to get across today. When you look at the FBI and the Durham report, and there's a bit of a revelation happening in America today, I do believe this. And maybe I'm um, overly optimistic because it takes Mondays to make Fridays, and this is Friday. Something in my instinct tells me that the Seinfeld crowd are a little more aware than I think they are of the FBI. Now, now I, I agree with what Charles said yesterday about the Durham report. I doubt they would know what the name of the report is, but I believe the Seinfeld watching crowd, and it was Frank Sinatra. Remember yesterday we said, I got one thing wrong about it. I said there was a very famous person in New York City who was about to die, got to the hospital quick enough to save his life. He didn't. I mean, Frank Sinatra died, but the the caregivers and the emergency responders said they got to the hospital in about a third of the time. And they couldn't believe how quick they got Frank Sinatra from his home to the hospital until the next day when they did somewhat of a post-mortem and said Seinfeld was on. The, the finale of Seinfeld was on. So everybody in New York City was, um, I guess, in their 800-square-foot, $6,000-a-month apartment, you know, watching the last episode of, um, of Seinfeld. But it's just, I believe the Seinfeld crowd are beginning to become a little aware. Now, I didn't say overly aware. And I'm not saying, hey, they're subscribing to the National Review at a, at a record pace. I'm not suggesting that for a second. But but I, I have casually observed what, what I'll call Main Street USA. And there seems to be more chatter about this FBI story. And it would go something okay. like, uh, hey, I was at work yesterday. And Joe keeps up with politics. And Joe was telling me something about this FBI and how they've tried to frame Trump. Now, that would have been the way it would couch. And um, and I went home and watched a minute or two of something on, on the news. Damn, Joe wasn't telling the truth. It does look like the FBI tried to frame. Now, that's not the word. I'm just saying that that's, that's the casual observer of politics. That would be their, their take on it. Now, what that means in 24, I don't have any idea. Um, the big loser in the Durham report to me is Ron DeSantis. I mean, it just, that there, people are, and this goes back to Trump not having, uh, you know, a following, or excuse me, a base, but rather, but rather a following. I read a lot of the comments on the National Review. I told you, they don't care for Trump very much. Um, they got a couple of writers who I think give Trump a fair shake. Um, I would say if Trump, if Trump ran for chairman of the board at the National Review, he'd lose 70-30. I mean, 30%, which, which is about one-third of all Republicans. Trump has the support of about two-thirds of Republicans. I mean, I didn't say they like him over DeSantis, but two-thirds of Republicans, I mean, he's got a loyal 
one third. And then he's got this other third, you know, that, that would vote against him under any circumstance or condition. And then you've got this third of the middle. And I think the story of the Durham report really helped him with that third of the middle. Uh, Trump's crazy when he says that the FBI worked with the Clinton campaign. I mean, that's crazy. That's Trump. You know how Trump is. I mean, that's why I don't want to vote for him. That's why I want him to go away. That's not why I don't want him to be the, the nominee. And I think you wake up, you sip your coffee and say, you know, when Trump said, <laughs> you remember when Trump kept saying that the FBI was colluding with the Clinton campaign, spying on his case? Remember when he said all those crazy things? It was true. <laughs> he was right. Yeah. Cheeto Jesus knew what he was talking about. And I do believe there's kind of a, um, a recircling of the wagons. In other words, those fall offs, those, um, the, the, those who aren't as loyal to Trump, I think they're, they're kind of, um, looking in the mirror. And, and kind of convincing themselves that, yeah, and, you know, he kind of owes, I mean, I kind of owe him this because when he said it, I called him a liar. When he said that the FBI was um, corrupting along with the Clinton campaign, the election, I just kind of dismissed that as just the craziness of Trump. But now that he's been proven to be correct, I, I just feel like I got to give him one more vote, one more shot, uh, one more try at whatever uh, I mean, wherever it ends up, you know, in, in a primary and then uh, eventually in a general. We'll take a break. Our first break of this Friday morning, 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Maybe that could be, I mean, we did have some fun with the show. I was listening to the guys coming over this morning, the Red Eye guys. And, and you know, Rev's programming director, he's the guy that decides what goes on the air and what does not go on the air. And I tell Rev that they seem to be really good guys. They seem to be really professional guys. They seem to know what they're talking about, but they don't get the part of entertainment. I mean, I just, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe you would rather be lectured at or, or tutored. I, I just don't believe that. I think people have an interest uh, to be entertained. And, and and those guys in the mornings, that when they well, do. the overnight guys. Well, I mean, what does that mean? I mean? You've told me that. What does that yeah. mean? They're the overnight guys. I mean, are they half apes or something i mean what does <laughs> no. that mean well first of all they're willing to go into work at midnight right okay and work all night and not during and, and overnight hours are not prime time in broadcast i get that right but they, they have a nationally syndicated show m- morning drive is prime time that's right they, they're on a, a lot of radio stations and i guess they've been successful at getting and keeping their audience doing what they do and everybody's different no n- not everybody can be the you know consummate informative entertainer well, I'm, that not, you I'm, are. Not, I'm not saying that i am you know i'm not <laughs> I suggesting know, I know. for a second that i'm the consummate <laughs> informative entertainer yeah. that's what i want to be right I mean, that's not what i desire to be um i, I just I, I look at i still do this a lot and you and i were talking yesterday about growth of a show mm-hmm. and and where do you go from here i mean I, i'm concerned uh we hash out our business in public i'm concerned about how long you can be relevant i mean i really it, it concerns me I'm a big believer that businesses have death cycles and not life cycles. I I know this to be true. Every single person who wo- woke up this morning is closer to dying today than you were yesterday. I mean, it, it's it's just and on that uplifting. Well, I mean, note. no, but it's true. It's true. We've done this eleven years. We're always thinking of a way to do it better. Um, how can we be more entertaining, more informative? Um, more suggestive, um, you know, I, I, I want Josh and the reason you and I, Josh, this is between you and I, uh, no, between Rev and I that I'll, I'll, I'll declare to you now. So when, when we began interviewing 
for that job, I told Rev, look, I trust your judgment. I mean, you've done this a lot longer and better than I do. But I think somebody young would breathe a little new energy and fresh air into this show, would bring a perspective that Rev and I, uh, we, we may believe needs to, but we don't know how to do it. Does that make sense? I mean, a 25-year-old has a, a, you know, a belief system and a worldview that's probably fundamentally different than mine. I mean, I think some of the fundamentals Josh and I are, are aligned on, but Josh wasn't born in 1963. I mean, he doesn't remember the REO Speedwagon days and the Lover Boy <laughs> and Foreigner um, days. You know, um, you miss Josh. I mean, you miss that. You've got this crappy music that we're stuck yeah. with. That's your generation. Sorry, by the way. Yeah, sorry about missed, that. You miss the good days. Yeah, of you music. miss the really good days of music. But but I just I think it, it it's always it's always in your best interest to not believe um, you figured it out. Yeah, to, to, to try and think about a better way to do it and a more interesting way to do it, a more provocative way um, to do it. And, and, and Rev even said yesterday or the day before, you know, these shows run out of gas. Sure. After, after a period of time, I mean, you've been on many, many, many shows, and the shelf life is four, five, six years maybe? Uh, for a successful yeah. one, sure. And somebody, especially if it's a, it's a team of people, you know, somebody moves on, they get another opportunity or whatever it is. So, so yeah, the, even the 10-year the run that this show has had going on 11 um, is pretty rare. And, and I felt like we've, we've built and improved our product over the year. And I think, and I think you, you're, that's what you're saying, and you just don't want to rest on that. How can we still improve and grow and take everything to the next level and just not you know, just keep doing what yeah, we're doing. Yeah, and, and here's the here's one of the concerns I have, and, and Josh will let you in on the business meeting here. You ready? The, one of the concerns I have is the growth. I mean, you know, it's easy to grow a show in a growing market. I mean, if you are a if you're a certain share in the fifth biggest market in America, there's a lot of room to grow. Newsflash: We're not in the fifth biggest market in America, and I and I'm almost overbearing with Rev about some of the analytics. Do I, do, Rev, do I understand this? I mean, I, my perception of the data says X. Am I right? And Rev normally say, yeah, but but it, let, let me explain this. Let me explain, you know, why I look at it a little bit differently than you do. I, I guess the point we're trying to make is we, we've never believed that you owe us anything. I mean, we don't. I don't know how many people in this market have an interest in conservative talk radio. I don't. I mean, we, we know what some of the um, some of the metrics say in major markets because they do a lot of deep digging in some of those markets. you got millions and millions and millions of people who are potential listeners and potential, you know, um, consumers to advertisers who, who buy into radio. But but we're not in one of those markets. And and, I, and I've told Reb before, you know, when you have a sense of plateauing, you need to get busy making sure you're not plateauing. And and I don't and this really goes back to the Seinfeld Um you know the 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 point I made earlier in the before the the last break that something instinctively tells me that the Seinfeld watcher is interested in what the FBI did, and if the Seinfeld watcher is interested in what the FBI did, there's a chance to to kind of sink our teeth into them. But I mean, there's a chance to get five or six or seven percent of the Seinfeld crowd convinced that conservative talk radio is worth giving 10 minutes of your time to every morning on your commute to work or 20 minutes of your time. So, so that's the reason that, that I think this story is big is it could allow us. I mean, you, you said that we've had three or four moments in the show's history where you knew we grew. I mean, there was sure. no doubt we grew. When was the school referendum? Yeah. I mean, there was no doubt. When was the Trump campaign? 
I mean, there's no doubt that Trump brought a lot of people into the fold who historically have not cared much for politics. I mean, they, they, they probably voted, maybe vote in a primary, probably not. They would normally vote in a general, may vote in a governor's race, but the do, that's the majority of Americans. I mean, you know, the majority of Americans don't vote in a primary. The majority of Americans vote in a presidential election, not by a big margin. What is it, 63 or 4 percent? That means, you know, at, at least one of three Americans voting eligible Americans just don't even cast a ballot. So so how do we? I mean, if we if we have sort of a niche product. And in a weird way, by the way, uh, Biden being sworn in as president uh, changes the dynamic for radio for talk radio because it gives us the opportunity to be the voice of opposition when the government is doing this when the president is doing that you know we can be a voice of of counter i guess counterpoint if you will and the very people that are concerned at the popularity of conservative radio are the very people that created the you know the the, the popularity of conservative radio because a a larger and larger and larger share of americans don't believe the mainstream media will shoot them straight but there's always been a, a, a section of the country, a segment of the country who said, man, I don't trust NBC or ABC or CBS. Remember what Obama said, that one of the uh, one of the biggest things to keep him up at night, what it was that exactly said, the proliferation of alternative media. I mean, we'd be alternative media. When I'll ask a question. When is conservative talk radio called mainstream media? <laughs> I mean, look at the audiences. Look at the impact. I mean, remember what Juan Williams said about, you know, wait to those Radio show boys get to work on Monday morning. You know, they'll, they'll stir this thing up in a very different light. Um, I don't know. I just I thought about the Seinfeld crowd. I think a lot about. And, you, you know, some people call them uh, low-information voters. I think that's what Trump would have called. I mean, excuse me, Limbaugh. Rush would have called uh, low-information voters. And, and, I just and by I the call way, them the, the Seinfeld crowd. I, I look through it a little bit. I always try to apply when, when you're asking questions like that, you know, the, the life cycle of a show and how do we grow – and how do we stay relevant, to use your terms? I always try to look at it somewhat through the lens of Limbaugh. Now, he was very unique, but he also had staying power. I mean, he was on national radio with, you know, as large an audience, you know, over for the most part, over 30 years. And would still be there today, obviously, if he hadn't, hadn't gotten ill and died. But uh, I always try to look through that because you know, I would ask myself the same question and apply it to Rush, you know, what did he do? Did he change over the years to 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 enhance or maintain his relevancy? He was really good at it. Right. I mean, he was extremely good at it. He was a unicorn. I mean, he was a um he was someone who had a burning desire to do what he did, had the 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 the, the mental capacity to retain knowledge and information, and then the unbelievable gift of communicating. I mean, that's, that's a rare, rare um, commodity. I, I'll be very, very um, selfish here for a second. It's the same thing with Springsteen. I mean, you, you've asked, you and I've debated, you know, about we are the world. G- give me the person in that video, the most relevant in, in, in American music today. And, and you would agree, it's, it's, it's Springsteen. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you've even said this, Rev. I've heard you say this more than one time. The great, great ones are usually smarter, and they work harder. Work harder. I mean, they just work harder. Um, but, but when you take someone who has a burning desire to be successful, um, a belief that this may be the last day they ever get to do that job and they owe their listener slash fan their best effort every single day, that's when you get a Limbaugh. That's when you get a, a Springsteen. I mean, that's when you get uh, the unicorn. 
that there are a lot of people who have talent. There are a lot of people who have desire. The people that have talent and a burning desire to give you their absolute best every single day, those are the ones that, that, that last 30 years on the radio or sell out in Madison Square Garden in the 70s and the 2020s. And those are, those are just rare people. Um, how many of you believe that you would be as hungry today if somebody paid you uh, $150 million for a 10-year contract? I mean, how many of you believe that you would be just as inclined to wake up at 4.30 in the morning before you signed a contract worth $150? I mean, that's, that's the work ethic you're talking about. That's the commitment. But, but it's also the love you have for what you do, the burning desire to be really good at whatever it is um, your talent has led you um, down the road. Of. Here, here's a bit of a, um, I mean, there's some human tragedy in this. Young people chase things. Young people make their minds up. Josh may be different. I think you're different. I mean, I think you told me at a very early age you knew you wanted to be in radio. That's I true. mean, there, there was yeah. nothing that was going to stop you from doing that. Um, now, I don't know what you would have done as a 20-year-old or some um, some guy who owns a trucking company and said, hey, Dave Baker, I'll pay you 200 grand to drive my truck. <laughs> you know, I don't know how much you would have loved radio then. <laughs> he give me the keys. Well, I mean, there you go. You know what I'm saying? Because money's a big part. Compensation's a big part of, of whatever it is we do. But, um, but, but you know, if young people normally look at, you know, salaries of this job and salaries of that job and starting salaries of this. I mean, my daughter's at the Dartmoor School of Business, and I've told her in so many words, I ain't paying you to get educated to go read poetry. You know, I want you to be gainfully employed. I want you to get a, 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 an education in something that prepares you for a lucrative career. And, and I say lucrative. Uh, yeah, well, what lucrative mean, Dale? You know what it means. I mean, I want you to make money. I want you to, you know, gain a skill, whether it's education or truth. But, but the, the, the kids are being a little bit discouraged from following their dreams. Does that, I mean, I, and, and I'm guilty of that. You know, um, Josh has a dream to, to have a radio show. Rev had a dream to be in radio. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I was raised in a family business. Um, I don't know what I dreamed to play linebacker for the Packers. Uh, realized that wasn't going to happen. Um, but, 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 but anyway, um, the, the colleges and I guess society in general, and it's probably the right thing to do. We encourage kids to get educated in things that will help them make money. When in truth, we should have said, but, but, but I'm not telling you to kick your dreams to the curb. I mean, I'm not telling you to give up on that, on that, 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 that career that, that maybe higher education says it's not so lucrative. Uh, maybe Forbes magazine rates it as the 247th best career in America. Uh, maybe the average income is less than that of someone who goes to nursing school or business school or, or law school or med school. Um, and and I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I really and truly don't have any idea uh, what the but, – but, but back to, I guess, the theme of our discussion um, this morning, we've been at this 11 years. And there's not a single year that has passed that we haven't done a little better the current year than we did the previous year. And and, and I'm always wearing rev out about, yeah, but let's make sure we're not plateauing. Let's make sure this year is not the year that we begin to see a decline because we're in business and every business has the proverbial death cycle. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few. 843-661-0937. Remember a couple of weeks back, we um we congratulated the area for having a new media presence. 
the Post and Courier announced yep. that it was going to be, we actually had the editor or the publisher. One or the other was here, um, kind of introducing himself to our audience. Um, the Post and Courier has a PD Bureau. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an iconic, I mean, if, if, if South Carolina has an iconic media outlet, the Post and Courier is certainly that it's been around a couple of hundred years, um, privately owned, not corporate media, um, not some, it's not the Atlanta Braves and Liberty media, you know, Rev and I get frustrated by the Braves not making certain moves in the playoff chase because Liberty media says, Hey, here's your budget. And Ted Turner says, we don't have a budget. I mean, if I've got to write a bad check to get Fred McGriff, I'll write a bad check to get Fred Fred McGriff. The good old days. Um, and and there's some of that at the Post and Courier. They would be George Steinbrenner or Ted Turner, locally owned, um, locally influenced. Uh, they've accepted, I think. I mean, I'm not speaking on behalf of the Post and Courier, but they've accepted that media has changed monumentally, and they're going to have to uh, evolve as they progress. Um, reaching out to conservative talk radio show or or I don't want to say collaborating or partnering, but to have one of your representatives from what I mean, I thought it was pretty weird. I didn't say anything at the time because I don't know it's my place to say anything at the time. But but I heard a I mean, I, I host a rambunctious, very non-journalistic in nature radio show. And they came on to explain what their intent is in our local media market, which is a media desert. I mean, uh, the local paper here, I'll leave unnamed, was bought by Corporate America. Um, I think Berkshire ended up buying it, Media General, one of these big conglomerates. Um, and the next thing you know, it's not a big enough market to have assets on the ground, uh, real reporters doing real journalistic uh, work. And, um, and and we struggled. I mean, we, I think, paid a price for not having legitimate news. I'm not legitimate news. I don't have any interest in being legitimate news. I am a provocateur slash entertainer slash, uh, I think we inform. I mean, I don't think we make things up to talk about. I mean, there are obviously important issues. We address them in a, um, I think an entertaining and informative, um, fashion. And, um, if we didn't, I don't think we'd be on the air for 11 years, but we're not journalistic. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to a council meeting and ask the council members what they meant uh, by that comment or remark or voting on this budget or that. Anyway, long story short, I read an article end of last week about the school district, Florence District 1, and it was on the Post and Courier's website, and I'm going to congratulate. Um, I don't know that we've seen much of this kind of reporting in our market, in our media space, and, um, and out of that came um, uh, the public being made aware of the district trying to raise taxes again and um and you know the the complicated history we have with the um school district and raising taxes being so opposed to the um the largest or the attempt to raise taxes by more than they've ever been raised in the history of florence county and that would have been the february referendum um that failed uh what 80 20 or 75 i think it's 75 25 ish um thereabout um i joked around they won't name any schools after me nor do I want any schools um, named after me, but I have an obligation not to tell taxpayers how to vote, but to inform taxpayers on exactly what they're voting for or against. And I think we've done a decent enough job there. Um, I'd love at some point in time to collaborate with the news and courier, excuse me, the post and courier and have someone from their organization appear on our show weekly. So we can get somewhat of a journalistic update. You're not going to get that from me. 
I mean, you're, you're not going to get, you know, what is the county doing, the city doing, the school district doing, local government, um, the university. You're not going to get that from me. I'm, I, that's not my forte, and, and, I, and I'm leveling with you. On the big moments, on the referendum, yeah, we're, we're going to get very focused on that. But, um, but the Post and Courier wrote a story about the school district, and, and a lot of people don't know this. Some do, but um, and, and I'm interested in it today because our delegation will be here, and the Florence School District 1 Board of Trustees is asking for a uh, millage increase, tax increase, and uh, they're asking for the additional revenue to increase salaries paid employees. I think assistant principals are going to get $5,000 a year raises. Teachers are going to get raises. Bus drivers get raises. Um, but they made it very clear that they're asking for a tax increase to to provide the revenue to increase salaries of personnel working at Florence District 1. I like that. I mean, I like the fact that it's that easy to understand. It, it's not real, real complicated. Where it gets a little bit complicated is when um, – uh, a board member or two said we are personnel driven and given the changes that come with the state budget that impact how the local budget has to be spent. I mean, that's interesting to me. I mean, that's an interesting sentence. I'm not in local government anymore. I'm not in state government anymore, but I do understand having served in local government and state government. I do understand, um, you know, the working together or not. Uh, the money comes from here and then some of the money uh, comes from there. I did a little work and I read um, some of the article. The um, the district is scheduled to receive about $94.2 million from the state's school fund. Now, um, I don't think the budget has been finalized yet. We'll get that from Rick and Bob Lowe and Jordan when they get here this morning. Um, so so the, the Florence District 1 schools will receive about $95 million from the state's school fund um local taxes raise about 191 excuse me 91 million dollars um and then about five million is what they call transfer from other funds having been to the county i understand about that transfer from other funds um this lawyer taught me rest and residue um but but that comes up to about uh what 175 176 million dollars they're asking for the budget increase from 175.9 to let me get this number short, 191.7 so they're asking for about a 15 million dollar increase um and that's the general fund budget request now they voted on it in may i mean the the first reading was in may and um they will vote again second reading will be in june and that is when i guess public debate uh public opinion is allowed uh, to be a part now i don't know about the school district never served at the school district at county in the, in the county government at county council the second reading is when you had public input. I mean, that's when the public were allowed to speak for or against, uh, why they're for, um, why they're against. It, it, it's interesting. And here's where, I mean, you look, look, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying yes or no. I mean, I'm not here to tell you to vote one way or the other. I think eventually I will, but, but I'm not ready to do that um, today. I went back and looked. So they're asking for a budget increase in the general fund of about $15 million dollars. That would make the budget in 23-24, 191.7 million. So I just looked prior to COVID. I mean, I just pulled some numbers last night. Um, the 2019-2020 budget was 154 million. That's a pretty hefty increase. Well, that's a big increase. Y wow. You ready? That's a hell of an increase. Yeah. 
from 154 million in 2019, 2020. Then we had COVID. And remember this, guys, and this is where I get real skeptical. $8.9 billion made its way into South Carolina COVID relief money. Of the $8.9 billion, $6.3 billion went to the public sector. I have no idea how much District 1 got. I have no idea how much District 2 or 3 or 4 got. No idea what they could do with the money, what they couldn't do with the money. But those are the questions that need to be answered. I mean, I, I, I don't believe you can give public education enough money. I mean, I, I, you know, that's me personally. Now, now, once again, that's probably unfair because it's, it's much deeper than that. It's not that simple. But, but I'm a believer. And, and if I had to answer, you know, the funding of public education in one comment or commentary, it would be they'll spend every penny no matter how much you allow them to take. It's the history of public education. It's the way public education has always been. I think some districts do a much better job than others. I think Rich O'Malley is a very, very um, astute financial leader for the school district. Doesn't mean that we should give them more money. It simply does not. Be- because you've got a bright financial mind running the school district, doesn't mean you vote for tax increases. I, I, that, that bothers me when I hear someone say, well, I'm for the tax increase because the guy running the business or, the, you know, the guy, you know, the, the, the council member knows what he's doing. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's, 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 it's a transfer of wealth. I mean, the wealth leaves the private sector, goes to the public sector. And I stand by this theory. Uh, here's the, uh, the R theory of economic reality. When you take a dollar, a single dollar, out of the private sector and, 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 and replace it in the public, in other words, when GDP is finite, Economic asset is finite. Tax dollars, uh, private sector, money is a finite commodity. There's a lot of it in America, but it's still finite. There is a number of dollars that circulate in the American economy, and I mean it's influenced by quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, and what the Fed does. And uh, I mean I, I get all that uh, bond buying and mortgage buying. I mean it, it gets real complicated. But at the end of the day, there 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 are so many dollars that make up. The, the American economy. And every time you take one out of the private sector and put it into the public sector, I think you hurt harm and make the economy less efficient. The government does not do a good job of allocating capital. It never has. It never will. It doesn't matter if the most conservative Republican, the most liberal Democrat, but they have different mindsets of government and the, um, the use of funds that find its way into the public sector, but it's not going to allocate capital as efficiently. Are there horrible businesses? Yes, of course there are. Are there lousy CEOs? Yes, but there's a metric and measure of which you gauge success and failure. And sooner or later, capitalism finds them out, and they fail. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Home Depot missed their number. They've never missed their number this bad since 2002. That, that, that's kind of an alarm bell for a mm. lot of economists out there. I mean, Home Depot is one of the staples. And, you know, they're one of the companies that a lot of an, uh, analysts pay close attention to because it, it just it reflects where Americans are in their spending habits. You know, you go to Lowe's or Home Depot or Ace Hardware, and, you, and you, you know, you, one of our sponsors here, Schofields. I would be very interested in what their sales are like today. I would be very interested in what their durable goods um, sales are. Th- those are numbers that 
economists pay attention to to make projections and predictions about where we're headed. Um, I, the fundamentally, I believe that public education has enough money to properly educate young people. I believe that people in education are, are, are absolutely committed to educating young kids. I think there are teachers that deserve more. I think there are a lot of teachers who deserve less. But, but fundamentally and philosophically, you're never going to give the public sector enough of your money to make them believe they don't need any more. It's just the nature of the beast. Um, and, and I do believe it matters if you've got an astute you know, financial mind running your organization. You should be more willing to accept them as, um, okay, they're doing the best they know how to do with my tax dollars. But when I read the 2019-2020 budget, and it was $154 million, and the requested budget, what, four years later, is $191 million, $192 million? I mean, we're talking about $47 million of, of additional general fund budget request in three years? I mean, that four years, I'm sorry, four years, 20. 19, 20, 20, 23, 24, it'd be four years. That, 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 that concerns me. And, and where did all the COVID money go? And, and, and we, as far as I mean, the, the comment about, you know, um, given the changes that come with the state budget that impact how the local budget has to be spent. I mean, that, that's a bit ambig, ambiguous to me. I don't know what that means. I mean, if I served on the school board, I certainly would. If I served in local government, I certainly would. And I understand uh, you got local money, you got state money, you got transfer funds. I mean, that, that doesn't surprise me because that was the case when I served in local government. But, but I want to I wanna do my dead-level best to inform. In fact, Josh, I want to give you, I mean, I don't think I've ever done this before, but an on-air assignment. I'd like for you to reach out to every member of the Florence One School Board and, and, and give them an open invitation to come on the show and explain why they believe they need $15 million more to, I mean, they're saying the reason, additional revenue for salary increases. I'm thinking about the general public. I'm thinking about the private sector. Inflation has never been as hurtful to the American consumer as it is today. Uh, maybe at one time, but not in my life. I mean, I don't remember inflation ever being as bad as it is today. I think there are fundamentals about the economy that have convinced me it's fragile. I mean, the fragility of the economy, the, um, the reality of, of inflation, and, and, you know, a school board decides now's the time to raise taxes. And, and I just don't understand that. I think there has to be some consideration given to the place you get your money, and that's called the, uh, you know, the private sector and the taxpayer. The school board doesn't generate money. The school district doesn't generate money. They provide a service, a very valuable service, a service we should fund adequately. But what is adequately? I mean, how were we educating kids three, four years ago for $154 million, and it takes $192 million today? I think that is a very legitimate question. That, that's not a gotcha moment. That's not a, um, you know, a conservative radio show host trying to bust a liberal school board in the, in the head. I mean, that, there's none of that. I just think when you, when you decide to go on the record and ask for $15 million more million and have been a part of a, uh, a board that has increased the general fund budget from $154 million to $192 million, you need to explain that to the public. And I don't know anybody that has a forum or a conduit that can allow those people responsible for making that decision other than Wake Up Carolina. And, you know, kudos and thumbs up to the Post and Courier for doing such a good job of explaining what it is the school board's asking. Now, you can imagine, you know, they'll go through the, the scenario of if you own a home worth X, your taxes only go up X. If you own an auto worth X, your taxes only go up worth X. 
X. I mean, you know, it's going to be a tax on business. It's going to be a tax on rental property. It's going to be a tax on residential property. It's going to be tax on automobiles. I mean, everything goes up. I mean, the millage increase what will go. I mean, it'll, business taxes will go up. Those who rent property, it gets more expensive. Driving your car gets more expensive. The homeowners. And, and you know, I, I, I got to believe there are, you know, tables out there that say if your home is worth X, it goes up X. And that's always the case. It only costs the homeowner, you know, another $37 a year. Well, well all I know is in 2019, 2020, there was about $48 million in the private sector that's not there today. But if the district, but the district doesn't print money. The Fed does, the district doesn't. But if the district was collecting $154 million in 2019 and 2020, and they're asking to collect $192 million, that's 40-some-odd million dollars that aren't going to be circulating out and about in the private sector. I mean, it'll be, it'll be in paychecks and teachers. Uh, they, they go shop and bus drivers shop and, and principal shop. I'm not just diminishing any of that. I just I want to extend an invitation to every board member. For them to come and defend or explain. I mean, there's no defending this. I mean, you, if you're man or woman enough to take a vote, you should be man or woman enough to explain why you voted the way you voted. I had someone tell me a couple of days back, you know, well, the, um, you know, the superintendent, well, the superintendent, is, I mean, he doesn't run the school district. I mean, he runs the day-to-day operations. School superintendents don't vote on tax increases. School boards do. We don't elect a school superintendent. I mean, obviously, school superintendents are incredibly important at how well a district performs. But but school board members decide whether to raise your taxes or not. And this school board appears to be ready to raise your taxes by, what, 3 3.5%. Now, is this a proposal to raise the millage, or is it a proposal for a referendum for the voters to no, decide? No, no, the, the, the public will have no say in this. So this I mean, is, the board will decide this. So this I is mean, in their purview. They can raise the millage. Correct. Per whatever limits th- th- are on those. This has nothing to okay. do with a referendum. I mean, the... the um, the the introduction was in May. Second reading will be in June, and that's when I think. But I'm going back to my county council day. Second reading is when you had public input. I'm just trying to make the public aware, and I think the best way to make the public aware is to get school board members to sit across from me and, and answer questions about why you believe it's necessary to ask the public to contribute another 15 million dollars in um in tax money to provide the additional revenue to give the salary increases that you think make our school district better? That's a very legitimate question to ask. And I don't want to ask this the superintendent because that's not who we vote for. That's not who we, the people, hold accountable. The school board holds the superintendent accountable. The school board asks the public for more money. And this school board is asking a lot of, you know, this public for more money. And, and you know, once again, I went back to the year before COVID, 2019, 2020, the budget was 154 million. That's a pretty big increase from 154 million to 192 million in four years. Let's take a break. We'll be back. I know we got some calls, and we'll get there on the other side. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jim in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air. Hey. Good morning, guys. Uh, yeah. Be careful with uh, the school districts. They're quite the elitist and. Uh, the education, I don't know if it's cartel or mafia is a better term, um, but they are a uh, radical bunch. And if you go on Twitter, they'll uh, expose just who they are. Um, they don't care much for us parents. 
Um, they think that uh, they are much smarter than than uh, us lowly uh, knuckle draggers for sure. Um, but and they certainly are their own worst enemy. But Ken, one of the things I've noticed um, is they've transitioned from talk, saying that they were uh, that education funding's being cut because that's simply not even the case. Clearly, I mean you're demonstrating it right now. Then they switched to, well, they were underfunded, and now they've changed to saying they're not fully funded. Um, certainly, educate public education right now is its own worst enemy, um, in the sense that uh, it, it we're giving an inch and they're taking a mile. Um, but wh- what what can the legislature realistically do to fix this? Um, because public education, in a sense, for building community is important, but they don't seem to be interested in actually fixing their own problems when it comes to finances and violence in our schools and uh, not appropriately uh, placing students in the classes they need to be placed in or kicking children out of classes they don't need to be in. So thank you, Kim. Thank you, Jim. Well, I mean, a lot of this – we don't take as serious who we put on a school board as we should. And I'm not saying we got bad people on the board. I don't know anything about the school board. I mean, Josh is reaching out to the board and we're going to invite every single member to come on this show and explain why they believe they need more money. I mean, I think that's a very legitimate request for, and I guess that is our role as public servants. I mean, I don't profess to be a public servant. I'm a former politician with a radio show, unapologetically opinionated. I mean, that's who I am. Take it for what, for what it's worth. Now, when it comes to elitists and get your feelings hurt on Twitter, I don't give a rat's ass. I mean, it doesn't matter to me how many teachers or superintendents or, or administrators like me or not. I mean, that's not my job to worry about about that. I mean, I'm a little bit liberated in that regard. Uh, you got to be careful with Lowe and Rick and Bon Jordan because they have an obligation. I mean, they have a legal and political responsibility to do, to do right by kids and families and, and education. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit about it this morning uh, because I, I find this sentence interesting, and, and I don't understand it. I didn't say I find it misleading. I find it wrong. I find it uh, – it's just given the changes that come with a state budget that impact how local budgets has to be spent. I mean, I, I, I'm not on the school board. I'm not in the General Assembly. I don't understand um, what they're saying when they say that. I applaud the school district for one thing, the clarity of which they're asking for the additional revenue. It is for salary increases of, um, of district personnel. But when it comes to what the General Assembly can do, and this is, um, this is back of stamp. I mean, this is bumper sticker. This is campaign um, fodder. Choice and competition. I mean, I've always said that. I mean, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, we can complicate the debate as, as much as we'd like to. And you can say teachers and administrators are elitist and school boards aren't responsible enough to be spending that much. I mean, all of those debates are are part of the dynamic. But at the end of the day, public education has figured out a way to insulate itself from choice and competition. And education should be a marketplace. We should embrace market forces. We should embrace choice, embrace competition. Um, that's why I was for Ellen Weaver, and I'm not naive enough to believe that Ellen Weaver can go as superintendent of education and create the most uh, the most ambitious voucher program in the history of, of public education. I understand probably better than Ellen did how much she was going to need the help of the General Assembly because I talked to Ellen a couple of times, and she would lead me to believe that she didn't need them as much as I knew eventually 
Um, she would. They are the appropriators. They have the, you know, the the checkbook to the state's coffers, and they are going to prioritize what they decide to prioritize. And I'm not for a second saying that this is not warranted. You know, I don't know what the school budget is. It's a little bit like what is the optimal temperature of the planet Earth? Well, well, you know, how much money does it take to adequately educate young kids in Florence County in District 1? I'm not talking about two, three, four, um, or five. Uh, one's gone away, right? Did we consolidate? Yeah, we consolidated yeah. some of um, the Timmonsville district. But um, but in on May 11, the district's board of trustees passed the budget. And the budget was not 175.9 as it was in 22-23. The budget was 191.7. And that's nearly 45, uh, close to uh, $45 million more than it was four years ago. That That's alarming to me. I, you know, let's get there may be a great reason that there may be a valid excuse. But in 2019-2020, the general fund budget was $154 million. They're asking for 191.7 in the 23-24. And I think if somebody's going to vote on that budget and ask you, the taxpayer, for that much more of your money, they should be willing to come in and explain to someone who knows the sort of questions that need to be asked why you believe that's the appropriate and responsible thing to do let's go to the phone mike in darlington good morning you're on the air uh good morning i think you you've hit on a nerve there and uh th- this is a real problem and in years gone past when i had to pour over spreadsheets and expenditures i was amazed at uh how much money went to junkets and to meaningless positions and uh expenditures in the school system and I said, why is this? Well, I started asking too many questions, and the next thing I know, knew my contract was terminated. But uh, that I, I understand that uh, uh, this money should be performance-based and a certain percentage of it, it, and they will certainly get it by hook or crook. I can tell you that right now. But uh, it may not be this year, but they'll get it later if not now. And they... If that money, the only thing you can do is try to get some of it towards school choice, to charter schools, to private schools, to facilitating competition. Now, they're not, they're not going to like that. They're going to fight over it like crazy. But uh, the rest of it needs to be performance-based, based on performance and real achievement. Can the, if, if, the, if you're uh, pumping a lot of people through the – system and they're not learning their letters and numbers that's a problem if they're not learning how to read by the time they're in the second or third grade that is a problem and that's where uh, the problem should be uh, addressed and and you should somehow cut off this blood flow to this cancer because it is like a cancer it's just growing like crazy and it's sucking money out of the private sector uh, unbelievably quick Thank you, Mike. And that's my concern. I mean, my, my concern, and this is, I mean, this is my philosophical bias. I mean, this would be my political ideology. Every time you take a dollar out of the private sector and put it in the public sector, your economy pays a price. I'm sorry. I'm not saying it's bad intent. I'm not saying there's any, uh, you know, malice in anybody's heart. I'm not suggesting that for a second. I mean, there may be, there may not be, but th- it's, it's indisputable that the private sector more effectively and efficiently allocates capital than the public. So you don't print money, but the district can't print money. General Assembly can't print money. 
Um, I mean, the, the General Assembly and the district both got a lot of printed money during COVID. I mean, there is some printed money floating around out there, some of the fiat currency that led to the rampant inflation. And if I were running for office against one of these board members, I mean, it, it would be simple. I mean, there's no doubt what my strategy would be. I mean, this guy's going to vote to raise your taxes. This lady's going to vote to raise your taxes when a gallon of milk has never been as expensive. A gallon of gas has never been as expensive. A loaf of bread has never cost as much as it does today. I mean, the inflation that is devastating American households. And at the same time, the school board members are going to ask you to pay teachers and administrators more money. I mean, that, I, I don't, that, that, there is no way. I would, I'll go on the record. Let's say this. There is no way in this world that as an elected official, I would vote for a tax increase today. Understanding what the average American family is having to deal with in relation to inflation. That there has never been a time in my life that inflation has affected the lives of consumers as it does today. M- most people don't make enough money to not worry about inflation. But I mean, they still do things. They, they still enjoy themselves. But there has been enormous adjustments made to the way people are living their lives. Rev and I talk about things he's doing differently, things I'm doing differently. And now's the time to ask those families to pony up more, to give teachers and administrators and bus drivers and uh, very, very worthy employees. I'm not suggesting they aren't. But but now, when, when inflation is is harming and hurting the average American family, that's when you go to the to, to the polls or excuse me to the um to the to the school board meeting and and pass a resolution saying I want more money. I, I just don't understand that. To me, it's tone deaf. I mean, it's tone deaf. I'm not saying never raise taxes. There, there may be a moment in history when the school district needs more money. But but I, I would have to, I mean, if I'm a politician sitting on a board, I'm not raising taxes when the average family's having to pay 30, 40, 45% more for their way of living than they were prior to, prior to COVID. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence is next. Hey, Dale, you're on the air. Morning, guys. You know, if they're... If they can come and show that they're having a bunch of turnover because of low wages, that they can't fill positions, and so forth, like, say, any other business in the country, then I can understand it. But here's the thing. You're talking $47 million? If you take every single, if you count up every employee of the school system and divide that into $47 million, that seems like a lot of pay raises there. I mean, I got to think each each employee would be getting several thousand dollars if they're giving each employee a pay raise. It may just be for some. Here's the thing. We still don't know. We don't have cameras in our classrooms. We don't have the gentleman before said everything should be performance-based. I believe that should. And, Ken, you keep saying they're asking for more money. Aren't they telling us they're going to take more money? They're not asking us to give them. They're telling us they're going to take it. And they're not being apologetic about it. They don't care. They want their money. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't understand. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Me, the district's board of trustees – pass the budget on first reading at its May 11 meeting. They will eventually have second reading and then third reading. That's the way these things go down. Um, you know, I think there's about 2,000 salaried employees at the school district, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
you got a state's teaching formula. I'll get with Lowe and Rick and Bob Jordan about that, um, you know, about what the state's formula is. Because um, I know that the, remember, the state is part of their budget allocated a lot more money to teacher pay. So so you got a step-up pay. And, and uh, you know, I, once again, if I were on a school board, I'd understand it. If I were in the General Assembly, I'd better understand it. I'm not. I mean, that, once again, I'm a, a kind of an, an aggressive, opinionated radio show host who knows enough to be dangerous. But, but you know, the only place I would start is in 2019-2020, the budget was $154 million. The, the ask this year is $191.7 million. Why do we need 40-some-odd million more dollars today than we ran the school district on four years ago? I mean, that, that's a very they, legitimate question. Wouldn't they boil part of it down to inflation costs more to run a school district? Yeah, but, but, I mean, you got to have sympathy for the people you're asking for the money. Uh, I know. I mean, I'm, of course. I'm, I'm with you, of course. And that, that would be the politician in me. I mean, I, I, would, I would sit down, if I were a board member, if I were, if I were king of the world, um, everything would be okay, but I'm not. So everything's not. So, but, but no, if I were a board member I, and, and somebody came to me and said, Hey man, we're thinking about raising taxes by $15 million to generate the revenue we need for the salary increases. I'd say, count me out. Well, what do you mean? Count you out. You don't want to hear me out. I said, no, I, I can't do it now. I mean, there's no way. Have you been to the grocery store lately? Have you been out to eat lately? Have you seen what a, what a set of tires for an SUV costs lately? There's no way I can ask those people to pay more of their hard-earned money to fund a, a public endeavor that is very worthy, very admirable, very honorable. But there's no way, there is no way that I, as a politician, would attempt to confiscate more of working families' money when they've never paid as much for the crap they need to live their lives as they're paying today. I mean, that's just, that's a little bit tone death as far as I'm concerned. And I was a lot of things as a politician. I mean, it's obvious I didn't keep the best records. I I was pretty in tune with what the average voter thought, felt, believed, lived. And and, and I'm concerned that this is sort of a tone-deaf decision considering the timeliness. Forget whether they need it or not. I mean, I think we need to find that out to begin with. Um, the, The people asking for money will never stop asking for money. I found that out. I mean, in, in my time in local and state government, the government agencies always believe they could do a little better job if they had a little more money. And maybe they could. But what do you do? Give them the private, just, I mean, take every dollar from the private sector and fund the public sector so they can do the best job imaginable? I mean, that's the heart of a conservative. You're skeptical, cynical, contrarian to government getting more money. It doesn't mean I'm a bad guy. It doesn't mean I'm right and you're wrong or you're good and I'm bad or I'm bad and you're good. It means I have a philosophical bias that I'm very hesitant to give government agencies more money because by and large, most times, I think they could do better with what they've got. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. We have a full house. We have... Senator Rickenbaugh, Representative Lowe, and Representative Jordan here. But before we do that, somebody called during the break, was kind enough to hold on. Let's go. Let's go to their call. Jacob in Florence. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, hey Jacob. Hmm? Yes, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Long-time listener. Good, good. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Well, I want to talk about what the American dream is and what it is not. The American dream was originally about one simple concept which is freedom, the freedom to have your own beliefs, 
and live your life in the way you felt best. The freedom to go to the mountains or the beach on weekends without a government official asking you where you're going. But sadly, many Americans have forgotten this. Many believe that the American dream is about having things. Many believe that everyone is entitled to a nice house with two new cars in the garage and a pool in the yard. Many believe that $31 trillion in debt will have no effect on their lives. But the writing is on the wall, and the U.S. and world economy will collapse at some point, and raising taxes on everyone will not fix anything but make it worse. Now, when this happens and the dust settles, let's hope that we all remember what is most important, that we fight for our freedom and that we embrace the truth. Now, Ken, there's a lot more in my mind, but I'd like to call in another day to continue this conversation. But thanks for this uh, this time here. Thanks, Joe. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Jacob. Appreciate that. I guess the part of his um his speech would have been, uh, you know, relating to tax increases about taxing and and, and, and look, I understand and accept, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, especially in front of these three guys. I am unbelievably liberated in my political opinions because I'm not depending on anybody to ever vote for me ever again in my life. Um, that, that, that allows me to say things in ways that elected officials cannot. And, and I love it when somebody says, well, he should be able to No, I mean, there's a calculus that has to come into play. Um, the one thing people who get elected office like doing is getting reelected office. I mean, they, they, why would you run if you want to lose? So I've always tried to be respectful. And 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 as a radio show host, it's somewhat of my job to create a conversation where there may not be any to to begin a debate where there may not be um, any. I go back to the referendum, Reb. Um, we were very and forcefully opinionated about the referendum. Philosophically, I'm opposed to taxes and tax increases, but but I certainly understand that you know the American government, state, local, school districts, some of they need revenue. I mean, they, you know, but but I think any time a government agency asks for additional revenue, we should have a very serious debate, and that's all I'm asking for. And Josh has reached out to every member of the school board uh, and allow them to come on the show and explain why they are in support of a, you know, a $15 million tax increase. Now I'll give the, I'll give the school board credit. It's pretty easy to understand. They want the money for additional revenue for salary increases. They want to give assistant principals a $5,000 raise. They want to give teachers raises. They want to give teachers assistance raises. They want to give bus drivers raises. I'm not saying whether they need the raise or not, but, but philosophically I've always argued that a government agency will always believe it needs more money. It's just the nature of the beast. I'm not saying they're malicious people. I'm not saying they have bad intent, but, but, but I have found in my years at local and state government, that government agencies always believe that if they had a little more money, they could do a little better job. That's my philosophical bent. It doesn't mean that I would never say to a government agency, you can't get any more money. You got to make do with what you've got. But when a school district in 2019-2020, four years ago, had a budget of $154 million, they're requesting a budget increase that will get them to $191.7 million. I think the public deserves to know, why do you need $37 million more million today than you were able to run the school district on in 2019-2020? Um, the interesting point with these three guys is, as I read the article, 
It says, given the changes that come with the state budget that impact how the local budget has to be spent. That's not trampling on the General Assembly, but but it appears to me, Representative Law, I'll start with you because you're on the Ways and Means. It appears to me that they're suggesting that the reason they had to do this was because the General Assembly was lacking in doing um, something else. Your, your, your point of um. Uh, I don't say your point of order. I sound like a presiding officer there, but <laughs> but, but you're, you're um, I mean, you, you say what to that? Well, two years ago, we changed the funding formula, made it simpler, made, gave them more money. We went from 70% uh, of the cost for all the teachers and, uh, and the state-funded part of this to 75%. So we went up and made it simpler and less strings so they could move money from one pot of money, whatever they needed to do, put it in the places they needed it the most. So we went up. This That resulted in close to, I think, a $10 million increase from the state to Florence District 1. This year, it's about an 8 8.5% raise that we've given them from the state. Now, with that came the mandate of you've got to give the people a raise. You've got to give the teachers a raise. We don't control all the employees of the school district we we look at after the funding primarily for teachers and so we were trying to keep up with the other state averages and we said here's the minimum amount a teacher can make now in florence district one we have a little more wealth than some counties do so they funded them already more than the minimum required so they're responsible for anything they want to pay and that's higher than, than what the minimum is. Uh, but I'll just say, you know, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated that they chose to, or are choosing, because I guess they've only had one reading of it now, they're choosing to go up on taxes. We're all frustrated. <clears throat> it's a terrible time. But, you know, those communist Democrats up in Washington gave out money, let people sit on the couch for so long they flooded this country with money, and they created laziness for people who didn't feel like they needed a job. That's where I, my frustration, even more than, than the local. I don't know. Do they, do they need more? Everybody needs more because inflation caused by the communist Democrats up in Washington has created a situation where if your state isn't growing, if your economy isn't growing, you cannot keep up. And we see a lot of that in just in Florence County and our little small towns that they can't keep up. There's no tax base that can keep up with eight, 9% rampant inflation caused by communist Democrats. You Jay, didn't hear that, did you? No, I didn't hear you <laughs> at all. Jay, Jay, I want to go to you for a second here. And because there has to be a, a practicality about being a, I mean, I'm a former politician. You guys are politicians, but, but when, when a government agency requests more money, there has to be a serious debate about whether they need the money or not. But, but you can't be completely dismissive of where the money comes from. I mean, the, the money doesn't come out of thin air. I mean, in Washington it does. But when you guys appropriate, that money that you're, 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 you're allocating to government agencies came out of the pockets of working families. And, and, and what I said earlier this morning, and I stand by this, I'm not going to say I'd never vote to give a government agency <laughs> more money, but there's no way I could do it with a straight face knowing what, what, what families are dealing with the price of gas, the price of, uh, of, of, of a gallon of milk, the price of a, a loaf of bread, the, the price of a, I mean, you, you see where I'm headed. I mean, inflation is rampant. And Philip nailed why we've got rampant inflation. So, so if education needs more money, let's debate that. But we can't completely dismiss 
where that money's coming from and what those people are having to do to, to, to pay that extra tax. No, you say it well. Um, we say all the time, we're not Washington, D.C. in Columbia. Um, we don't print money. We, we're required to balance budgets. Um, as I look, look across this table and look at the two gentlemen to my left, I don't mind speaking for them. I don't think they'll mind this part of it. We pay every tax that everybody else pays. We don't miss the we don't miss the boat on paying those taxes. You're I, not exempt from being a member of the General Assembly. No, sir. We're, we're going we pay the taxes like everybody else pays the taxes. I was thinking about this last year. I held my property tax to the very last day. My wife said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm pulling a Philip Lowe. I'm gonna wait to the last <laughs> possible minute to give them the money." Um, and, and there's a certain reality of that you know we we need to stop and remember, like you just said, people work very hard, um, very hard to earn every dollar for the most part of, of these tax dollars, like, like I said, separating the, what Philip just described that goes on in Washington, DC. And we, we, we should not take lightly the, the work and the effort that came to, uh, to, to come to that money as the government tries to step between you and your, your checkbook. Um, as it applies to education, go, I look back at the time, you know, um, the years I've been in Columbia, um, education became a priority we looked at the statistics found that in teacher pay we were one of if not the lowest in the southeast we're never going to be able to measure up to the national average there are lots of of financial reasons for that Um, but we had to do better and we made it a priority that over a period of time to do better and we have done better and now we're extremely competitive in the southeast as far as teacher pay goes and I believe that's a reflection of the value we put on education and the value we put on teachers and the hard work and the and the responsibilities they carry, not just in the classroom, but for, for society in general. Um, but what can't get lost in that discussion, and I'm, I'm thankful that this discussion now that we're having today is happening between first and second reading for the school board so that the light can shine and we can see exactly um, what's being requested, how much is being requested, how it's going to impact the taxpayer Um how it's going to impact where the money's going if the if they choose to approve it and to to be held accountable and ask questions about whether it's needed or not mike yeah i mean this is one of those duality of government conversations that you told me before i even uh, even ran that you're going to get put in positions where there's multiple sides of it um, but your yes has got to mean yes ken and your no means no and for me personally when i ran and i I offered and wrote and sent out my contract with the PD and 10 things that in writing, because in business you have things in writing, your contract. I said I I was going to protect tax dollars and not raise taxes. So I'm going to be the man I said I was going to be. It's always amazing when I I hear politicians, they they campaign on one thing and then they do something different. Um, Even if you disagree, I'd like to think that somebody would say, you know what, your yes meant yes. So when I said I was was pro-life, I vote for the pro-life legislation. When I'm pro second amendment, I vote for constitutional carry in a case like a tax increase. I say, you know what, if we're going to protect tax dollars and we're going to realize that people have worked way too hard to raise taxes on them, let's be better stewards with what we have. Then that's what I'm going to adhere to. At the same time, I appreciate the successes Florence school district one has had, um, you know, even the $12 million they got in um, when they brought in Florence School District 4 in Timminsville, that was a failing school, failing the students, failing the families. So the $12 million investment that the state made to bring in Florence School District 4 into one was a good decision because it's better for the kids. If we ask the question, what's best for the children, that was a good call. Um, It's amazing because we're in a situation where there's plenty of money out there 
But what we do with the money and how the money is spent is a conversation. That, and that's the kind of rigor that I think school boards need to have. Legislators need to have. All of us need to say, how are we spending the dollars? But I will say that a, a good and I mean a very good public school district is important for economic development. We talked to the folks at Envision. Those 1170 jobs that are coming to Florence, those 1170 people, many of them will have children in the public school. That was part of the decision making factor for Envision to come here with the quality of our public schools. We need good schools, but we also need to be men of our word. Philip, you talked a lot about the the money that was printed, created out of thin air. That money ends up here and there and uh, you know, th- this this company got this much money. That company got that much money. The government got a lot of that money. I mean, I looked at some of the analysis um, in, in, in the CARES 1 and 2 in the American Rescue Plan, about $8.9 billion made its way to South Carolina. About $6.3 billion of the $8.9 billion made its way to the government um, coffers. The General Assembly benefited from that. School districts benefited from that. Has that so distorted what reality is? that it may take two or three years. I mean, if we got drunk with free money and, and we got to sober up a bit before we can get back to back to normal, I mean, you, you, we can't believe that money lasts forever because it doesn't. But it did get us a little bit fat and happier, fatter and happier than we normally are. We got so much money, we haven't figured out how to spend it all. They're talking up in Washington and about... And, Philip, that's not good. You, no, would, agree, you would agree. That's no, crazy. It's terrible. It, it, it artificially inflates everything. It, they're talking about now, as part of their balancing of the budget, of course, no, no word balancing will ever come in Washington, but they're going to take money back, or at least money that was set aside to be appropriated. Some of the states had to come up with a, a portion of that money, and they didn't have the money to pay for it. So some of the, the communist, uh, Democrat-controlled states in the Northeast, they had such a... a Bad budget year, because why? Because people are sitting on the couch wearing masks and talking about vaccines on the internet all day instead of working. So they didn't have the money to to get their share of the federal money. So there's big pots of federal money just sitting there now. They're wanting to take it back to balance the budget or you know come closer to that. Since we're finally talking about this desperate time we're in, you know, in, at at federal not not raising the minimum that they uh, that that they appropriate every year so anyway yes it was too much money they're trying to figure out ways of getting some of that money back in so they they could at least have that money to spend somewhere um our state is poised with cash ready to take more money down if they open that door up we're going to put our share in and get our share of it and that's kind of how it is we all drew ppp didn't we if we had a chance everybody's got a lazy streak everybody wants free money everybody wants more money but when you tax me more, and that's where I have a problem. Hold on to that. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. I want to kind of keep going down this road uh, as respectfully as we can. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Verd Odom, Marlboro County. You are on the air with our delegation. <laughs> Good morning. How y'all doing? Hey, Verd. Hey, bud. Morning. Good. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't sure what you were doing, but anyway, just uh, wanted to tell Kim we got convention this weekend, and wishes luck, and uh, hope we have a successful convention without a whole lot of hoopla. Uh, and uh, Ra- radio did, show hosts like hoopla, Bert. I know you don't, but we do. <laughs> we uh, we did have a great event yesterday down in Lake Marion for Fawn Palolino High Sister 64 represented. 
Uh, I had a fundraiser with her with Governor McMaster and Merle Smith. Uh, they were guest speakers, and we had 150 people in the rain and wind. And I mean, uh, she wanted to, wanted 150 people, and I, I think she hit it dead on the nail. But uh, anyway, I appreciate all the job that our your del- our delegation does for the PD, and uh, you know, we we just uh, got to get the abortion bill passed through the Senate next week, and uh, you know, they've already done a lot this year, you know, but we need to just keep it up and. Uh, uh, all the delegation members, they need our support in the PD and, and all across South Carolina. Thank you, Bird. Appreciate that. Philip? Yeah, word out for phone down there. She She's doing a good job. She arrives. She's listening. She's smart. She ain't running her mouth at the well every every minute. So we appreciate her. Y'all support her down there. Uh, you've got the, you two have the budget to finish. Am I right? I mean, you're done with abortion. I'm not talking about the House. I mean, the House is done with the abortion, but not finished with the – is the conference committee finished with the budget yet? The House finished abortion uh, late or early in the Thursday morning hours, I guess, okay. or late late Wednesday night, I think. And the bill, uh, the House bill is a six-week ban. Is that it? Correct. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's basically a, a modified, what we believe to be a legally sound version of the heartbeat bill. Um, six weeks, uh, once the heart, six to eight weeks, once the heartbeat is detected, then an abortion is no longer al- allowable or legal. And then there are exceptions in the bill, rape, incest, life, the mother, fetal anomaly, uh, typical type exceptions that can take that window up to 12 weeks related to the exception. Um, Is that an acceptable bill for the Senate, do you expect, Mike? I mean, we had had passed the bill earlier this year, sent it to the House. Um, The best case scenario is when the House sends it back to us, we get it next week, Tuesday, when we go back in, um, that we vote concurrence. And I hope we vote concurrence very quickly. Uh, are there any amendments that you guys know of that you put in there that we didn't send over to you? It's, we we well, amended the bill um, to try and make it more legally sound. At, you know, the back and forth of this, how the House and the Senate had bills. Senate couldn't quite get to where the House the House version of the bill. So, at the very last minute, House made the decision we can't leave Columbia in the state of South Carolina, the state of state we're in. We could not continue to be a destination state with the states around us continuing to shrink the window of abortion. So we took up the Senate bill, modified it, we believe made it more legally sound. I also add that the modifications were in negotiation with the Senate or some of the folks in the Senate so that it was described to us as this would be palatable to the minimum number of votes uh, necessary to get for, for y'all to get it over the finish line. So we're very hopeful and optimistic that this can, this can become law. Yeah. The one swing vote is, as Senator Tom Davis in Buford County, he has said that if it's the bill we sent to you, the heartbeat, because your Human Life Protection Act was a bill that had no chance of passing the Senate, but the heartbeat bill we sent to you, Davis has gone on record to say, if you if what you passed and they're sending to us next week is our bill without any substantive changes, then he's good. Um, if there's any substantive changes, then he says is going to have an issue, and he's one swing vote that we'll need to and your argument is the majority of, I don't want to say monkeying around with the bill, but tinkering of the bill was to make it more legal, uh, legally sound. Correct. I mean, go back and look at the not- context of the bill doesn't change. Some of the language does to avoid uh, a potential loss in court. The overall picture Correct. of the legislation, the six, 12 exceptions, all that, all that, all the, all the guts of the bill is, is very, or is the same essentially. Um, it's to try and make it withstand the, the standard that the court applied to it last time in a way that it'll be become law for going forward. And you guys will deal with that. I'm supporting Rick and Bob. The Senate will deal with that uh, this coming week. Okay, I want to go to the budget. What, where I mean, what, where exactly is the House on the budget? 
it's in conference committee. That's three from the House, three for the Senate, and they've met, uh, I think, two or three times now. Uh, those are on TV live, uh, you know, when they do that. I presume they're taped too. But uh, we're there's a lot of difference between the House and the Senate version, and there's a lot of negotiation that takes place. If uh, if they settle on it, we'll be back on Wednesday this coming week to uh, to take care of it in the House. Uh, and send it over to the Senate. So we're we're kind of we're we're optimistic that'll happen Wednesday. Our goal is to finish up and be out of that state house at the end of May with, with everything wrapped up. And the budget and abortion are the only two things hanging out there. Now, Am I right? No, I believe the the governor really wants us to finish the bond reform bill. The the bond reform bill is a definite. I don't think there's any judicial reform bill that's going to. Um, they're going to be heard. We've got two more weeks to go for sure. We've already been told we'll be there for two more weeks. And the, the second week, they want us to bring up constitutional carry, possibly, and or judicial reform bill. I've got to put you on the spot here. How long do the three of you believe the governor's appointee for comptroller general will remain comptroller general? I mean, is that a fair question? I mean, you're a senator. You're two House members. You couldn't, you couldn't say grace over who it should be. So the governor appointed someone. I'm, I'm of the opinion the governor appointed someone that would force your hand to act sooner than later. So anybody care to give an opinion on what you think will happen in regards to that position? Well, there's three years left on that unexpired term. I would think they would fulfill the end of it. Okay. You just don't see a um, a meeting of the mind, so to speak, between the House and Senate on a um, a consensus candidate. I mean, he'd have to resign. There's yeah. no, no way to pull him no, out. No, I, no. I think, I think the, the General Assembly could replace him if I'm not – Jay, Jay, you're the oh, lawyer. Really? Yeah, that'd be good. So all the, what, what has to occur is the stalemate has to end. Right now, the Senate and the House cannot agree on uh, it. Takes a, on, once you get the House and Senate into a joint meeting to take up the issue, every is the General Assembly is not a weighted vote or anything like that. Um, you combine the two bodies, the total number, and the, per, or the, the person who's running or being put into the hopper, so to speak, to be considered for the job. If they get a majority of the votes, they become the comptroller general. To this point, um, the House and Senate can't agree on the candidate. Um, I, the, the, I guess the backstory is uh, the House has chosen one person, the Senate's chosen another. The House has more votes than the Senate, obviously, so the Senate refuses to meet to take up the election, and that's their prerogative, and that's the decision they've made. And so that's forced us, now that we're technically in a in – a, uh, extra innings, so to speak, or a- after session, the governor's called us back. The governor's exercised his power to temporarily appoint the comptroller general. Are there any conversations? I'm going to tell me as much as you'd like. Are there any conversations between the House and Senate and the governor about a um, a consensus candidate? Does anybody care to give an opinion there? You know, the governor has said, this is our responsibility to to get the job done, and I will cover this until you get the job done. And, and that's, a again, we'll see when and if the stalemate ends. That's interesting. That's still, um, that's kind of, I mean, th- that is an educational part of government because if you'd asked most South Carolinians, if you'd asked most members of the General Assembly, you know what happens in that case? Most of us would have scratched our head and said, I-, I know what I'd have done. Let me go talk to Jeff Gossett. Let, let me, <laughs> yeah. before I answer a question about, about that. But it's interesting, um, the, the, the interaction between the governor's office and, and the General Assembly when someone leaves office and the, the two bodies can't, find you know an agreement then then it goes to the governor but the governor i mean you guys can't overrule the governor tomorrow if you chose to correct i mean if these things that need to happen did happen 
that there could be a new comptroller general by Monday. It if, does, if, this doesn't happen very often. The last it's, time it's this great. happened was the treasurer when um, when T Rav when T Rav had to resign, and uh, we, I think a, a former House member became the treasurer until the next election. Correct. So this doesn't happen every day. And it's interesting. I mean, it's not any fun for anybody, but it's interesting to watch it play itself out. We got a call. Let's go there. Breeze. Good morning. You're on the air. Hey, this is Bill. Uh, I didn't hear you, name. This is Breeze, guys. Um, listen, you know, we all were talking about the schools earlier. And the problem I see is there's no accountability. Uh, the, the, the government public school system has basically let down both of my children. My son, Joshua, followed all the school policies, and, he, and his brother saw him get beat up regularly. They saw him at the hospital with a skull busted over me and slammed into a bathroom wall. You know, so my younger boy said, Dad, what do I do? I said, well, son, you, 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 I don't want you to initiate or be aggressive, but if somebody's throwing punches at you, trying to hit you and harm you, at least put your hands up in a defensive posture so you don't get beat up like your brother did. And so my son now, because of Dr. O'Malley's policy, has been thrown out of school for the entire year. He's out of school for a month. A young man came at him and started throwing punches at him. And the policy was, put your hands out, get beat up, or turn around and then turn around politely and walk and ask for help. The problem is there's nobody at these government schools to help them. I mean, who is going to, they going to turn to a, to a female teacher and say to break up two high school boys fighting? And then the thing is, as O'Malley's policy, not only is it ruining my son's life, who has never been in a fight in his entire life, his entire life he has never thrown a punch at anyone. And, of course, he didn't even get hit here. But O'Malley's got this blanket policy that if any kids get into anything called resembling a fight, I understand gang-related stuff. I understand beating a kid up half to death. And I'm not saying that either one of these kids didn't deserve some type of punishment. But O'Malley also wants my son, not after they're totally ruining a 15-year-old boy's life that is an honor student, has been asked to be participate in the gifted program over Wilson High School, but wanted to be around the kids that he grew up around. They are ruining a 15-year-old boy's life. And there's nothing you can do now to, to save my son, Joshua, who was let down terribly by the government system. And now Hudson, he's already been out of school a month. My ex-wife tried to get some kind of appeal process, and O'Malley put it off to win God knows whatever. Well, it was the point of an appeal if the dang old off school's out. And on top of that, they want my son to go to a government psychiatrist to make sure he's not mentally ill because he was because he actually put his hands up to defend himself. I would like for TJ, TJ Joy, the sheriff, to get a copy of that video. That incident happened in a hallway and in the classroom, I would like for all of y'all to look at it and see if that warrants taking a 15-year-old boy and destroying his life and having it on his permanent record that he was thrown out of school for fighting when he never threw a punch and he was the only one being attacked and he was the only one that got strangled. And this other boy, he didn't deserve his life destroyed either. either. But do you, would you think that your kid, kid, or any of you other guys over there, Mike and Jay and y'all, Allow your kid to go to a government psychiatrist to determine if there was something wrong with him because the school district said that. I mean, does that warrant destroying a 15-year-old kid's life? 
Now, I wonder how many people, how many other kids have had their lives destroyed because they don't look at this thing as a case-by-case basis and, and that going off. How many other kids have been thrown out for a year for doing, for you know, for stuff that really could have been handled with maybe just something as simple as community service? All right, Breeze, let's go, let's go here. I mean, it, it, the three of you, I mean, who's, I mean, obviously, who, who's responsible for that? Um, I mean, if somebody has a complaint, uh, Mike, they're, they're pointing to you. I mean, if someone has a complaint like that, um, what, what do you perceive your role and responsibility to be as a um, as a state senator? Yeah, my understanding, and, and I've talked to Breeze about this, my understanding is the Florence School District and Oswald, all the school districts have a school board that is who the administration answers to. So I don't know the intricacies of how the appeal process works, um, I remember when the, 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 essentially the ban on fighting, um, zero came, came out, zero, yeah, zero tolerance. I remember, yeah, I remember Rich, Rich sat here and talked about the zero tolerance When it came policy. up, but there was going to be a review process and an appeal process. Don't know the timing of it. Don't know the logistics. I know we're what middle of May, almost the latter part of May. So I don't know what the timing is of that, but it was supposed to be an appeal process. And I believe that people can get things wrong. There needs to be an appeal process because there is absolutely human error and human fallibility. So there should be a process to say, wait a second, I think the wrong call was made, review this. But I don't believe from a legislative perspective, the state Senate or the state house can come in and tell a, a, a school board or a faculty or administration, here's what you need to do regarding this disciplinary case. I don't think that's a mandate. Expedited in a reasonable amount of time would be my expectation there. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. One of the interesting conversations we've had today, well, I'm part of the only interesting conversation we've had all day or even all week for that matter, was off the air talking about Republicans and Democrats. The The Republicans have an issue with female voters right now. I mean, I don't know if it's historic. I don't know if it'll it'll change. But, but right now, it looks like with Trump as the, I don't want to say the eventual nominee, who knows what happens. Uh, there's a lot of things that can happen. Uh between now and the end of the primary. But it looks like today the odds on favor to be the Republican nominee is Donald Trump. And, I mean, the data shows that Trump struggles with women who historically vote Republican. They're not diehard Republicans. They're not primary voters. But they do tend to vote a little more conservative than liberal. Trump lost some of those voters. I'm not saying that's the reason he lost in 2020. I think that's a whole other set of dynamics. But but the Republican Party has to figure out a way to uh, to emphasize or make a point of the reality that the Democrats are trying to do things that the in other words, Title IX is up for debate. And um, do we have the call? Uh, no, it's, it's something's dropped here. Okay, so we have hey. a guest lined up here, and I know you were yeah. setting that up. Well, let me the Attorney General of South Carolina, yeah. Alan Wilson is to be with us here in just a couple of minutes, but it apparently um, we're having some phone issues. Imagine that, calling phone, calling radio show, having some phone issues. Um, tends <laughs> it to wouldn't, be a, wouldn't be the first time. Uh, tends to be a kind of a weekly, at least not daily occurrence. <laughs> at least it's, um, it's only weekly right. is, the, uh, is the case. But anyway, um, with Trump as the nominee, there, there there's a belief amongst some experts, I'm not an expert, but some experts, that the Republicans will lose because female voters will vote for the Democrat. I, I'm not saying I buy that, but that's that's what some of the, the data suggests. And as a former politician, I think the Republicans have to figure out a way to say, hey, not only 
do the Democrats believe a woman should be allowed to have an abortion the day before they're to deliver a baby? They're also okay with men competing in women's organized sports and athletics. And one of the people who has been most outspoken in pushing against the Biden administration in regards to uh, protecting Title IX, um, some of the changes the Biden administration are trying to make to Title, to Title IX is, um, is Attorney General Alan Wilson of South Carolina. And if I'm not mistaken, the Attorney General is with us this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, good morning, my friend. How are you doing today? I am doing well. So the Biden administration wants to make it okay for a man to compete with a woman in women's athletic and sporting events. You've got a daughter, right, Alan? I do. Okay. I, I got to believe that this is not only a political issue with you, but, 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 but something of a certain degree of intimacy because you do have a daughter. You're the father of a, of a female child. So, so walk me through what the Biden administration is trying to do and, and what you hope to do to protect not just your daughter, but daughters all over South Carolina. Well, absolutely, Ken, and thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk to you about an issue that I think is incredibly important. So basically, this is what's going on. In 1972, Congress passed an amendment to the Civil Rights Act. It was called Title IX, and basically what it does and what it says is that any schools that receive federal financial assistance, if you receive federal financial assistance in your school, you cannot discriminate against people on the basis of their sex meaning they have to be offered all the same educational opportunities. And if the school provides a sport, you have to make sure that girls have the same access and opportunities to play sports as the boys do. And this is from elementary school all the way through college. If you receive federal dollars of any kind, this is what would apply. The Biden administration is trying to pass a rule that would redefine the definition of the term sex on the basis of sex. Sex used to mean, when Congress wrote it 50 years ago, that based on what you were born as, a boy or a girl. Um, now, it basically, they wanted to rewrite it to include what a gender you identify as. And so by doing this, any school that would prohibit, say, a, a track athlete or a swimmer or a softball, a baseball player, you could perhaps uh, lose your federal funding if you're a school district and you do not allow boys to have access to girls' sports. And we, we sent a letter with a number of other leaders in South Carolina, as well as other AGs around the country, saying that this is a bad law, a bad regulation, and you do not need to implement it. So, Alan, legally, what can you do? I mean, in other words, I got to believe that the if the attorney general is involved in it, there will probably be some sort of legal debate. Um, so, so are you preparing for a legal argument with the federal government? Well, of course. Um, right now, this is a this is a rule um, that they're trying to, you know, basically Congress passes a law and then the executive branch agencies, in this case, the Department of Education, they put out rules that, you know, that will um, implement the laws. And in those rules, and, and this is how the administrative state in D.C. has gotten out of control. Basically, you have unelected bureaucrats in the federal agencies rewriting the laws that Congress passed because they interpret words differently. They redefine the words to so they can implement their policy preferences. And so we are obviously going to challenge at the appropriate time legally uh, the, the Biden administration's rewriting of the law through executive administration fiat. Um, Kenneth, I can't underscore this enough, and I appreciate you recognizing that I have a daughter. You're a father yourself. Um, in 1972, when this law was passed, one in 27 
girls participated in sports in the, in, when they were in school. Now, today, in 2023, one in three, 30% of girls participate in, in sports. They, they're, they're afforded the same opportunities as boys, uh, the same opportunities to not only have an athletic output, um, work on their mental health through, the, through sports and activities like that, but an opportunity to compete for scholarships to colleges and universities. And if they don't have those opportunities because someone who is genetically predisposed to be stronger or faster than them, then they're losing out on those opportunities. Alan, most people don't understand the 10th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, uh, the, the legal system and how things, but from a practical application point of view, in other words, to, um, to John Smith on Oak Street, who doesn't understand the AG's argument or legal debate with the federal government, they don't understand the 10th or 14th Amendment. What, what, what could happen that allows males to compete against females in organized sport in South Carolina? And how quickly could, could you challenge that and make sure it doesn't happen for any longer? And I guess what I'm asking is, you understand the legal debate. I understand the legal debate to some degree. But, but for the guy eating, you know, breakfast at the Waffle House this morning who doesn't know what you do, doesn't know what I do, w- walk me through chronologically, logistically what could happen and what you hope to have happen. Well, first off, when I, when I have conversations with people who disagree with me on this issue, and they're good people, we just disagree on this issue, they say, Alan, how many transgender people are trying to you know, infiltrate and come in and take scholarships from young girls? How many transgender boys are coming in there or girls are coming in to try to take over these positions? You, know, you might find one or two out of a couple hundred thousand. But, Ken, what I, the argument I would make to the guy sitting in the Waffle House right now drinking his coffee is this. It's what this represents. It's federal overreach. It's the federal government basically ignoring the rule of law, rewriting laws with unelected bureaucrats ruling through administrative fiat or diktat, if you want to call it that, and basically forcing their agenda down, not through the people's elected representatives, but through the administrative state. And if we allow something like this to happen, then they're just going to keep moving that line further and further and further back until one day that they're basically doing everything through executive branch agencies and the people's elected representatives have no say in how we are governed. And that, that's, that's how tyranny begins. And you are our only safeguard. I mean, I think I know that. I mean, you are the chief legal officer for the state of South Carolina. You are our gatekeeper, so to speak, the one that can keep South Carolina from allowing this to be normalized. Well, listen, Ken, and thank you for giving me that much credit. I will say this right now. Um, I I am a safeguard. I am a person who will fight in the courts. I'm the last line of defense when it comes to the legal battle, but I couldn't do what I do if it wasn't for um, the leaders in the legislature. You know, the president of the Senate, Thomas Alexander, Merle Smith, uh, Speaker of the House. Um, You got Greg Hembree and Shannon Erickson in the House Education Committees. Uh, You got Ellen Weaver, the superintendent. They signed this letter. They're the ones funding my office in the legislature. Um, you know, the governor is very supportive of our efforts. And so it takes a lot of people to, um, to fight. But, you know, right now we're gearing up for a fight to fight against federal overreach and to protect South Carolina's right to govern itself the way that it wants to govern. And more importantly, we're fighting for the rights of our sons and daughters to not have a radical leftist agenda crammed down their throats. Very well explained. Alan, appreciate your time. Have a great day and great weekend, sir. And I'm sure we'll talk sooner than later. Will do, Ken. You take care. God bless. Thank you. Alan Wilson, Attorney General of South Carolina, explaining um, what he feels his obligation is um, to stopping nah, federal overreach, but it really is. I mean, to be a debate on, uh, you know, the XX chromosome or the XY chromosome, is that 
is that true any longer or not? Is, um, you know, it's, it's just, I, I don't laugh because it is. I mean, you know, I try to be open-minded. I try to be a bit understanding that my way of seeing the world is not the only way uh, to see the world. But at times, some of these debates, I, I think, do deserve uh, kind of a chuckle of laughter. I'm just shaking my head. Well, I mean, you, well, really? you really and truly. And, and, I, and I'll tell you, I don't, if the Republicans can't win this debate, then the Democrats, I mean, they should just wave a white flag and say, hey, you guys are just better at it than we are. I mean, we just suck. I mean, if you can't, if you can't convince a mom of a teenage daughter that her child deserves to compete against people of the same sex and the other party wants to normalize your daughter competing against men who are bigger, stronger, more athletic, then uh, maybe it's time to uh, not abolish the FBI, but abolish the Republican Party and come up with a newer, smarter <laughs> smarter version let's go to the phone someone's there david in the pd good morning you're on the air hey good morning uh hey ken i can't believe this whole week you know we've talked about during investigation did you know that Stephen nix was in raleigh last week i didn't know that you didn't know that one okay well the reason i'm bringing that i'm not here's another name too share her birthday is tomorrow so that's one of dave's young dave baker used to hang out with share <laughs> how, how do you think how old do you think Cher is going to be tomorrow? Seventy-five. Uh, Seventy-seven. Wow! And you—you've brought up a topic. See, Aerosmith had it down, man. They had two songs: "Single Women," "Dude Look Like a Lady." Guess what? In their mind, they're both disenfranchised. Uh, now, I'll give Cher and Stevie Nicks credit. They make enough money not to worry about inflation. Uh, I can give them credit. So you brought up a good point a few minutes ago. That's that demographic that uh, is the Democrats have that single female. Uh, and you're talking about the birth control and this and that. If you remember Elaine on Seinfeld, that woman had a birth control portfolio. I mean, she had all kind of different ways of, of that. But at the last, you always had that abortion to go to. So when you look at these issues, it comes down to bodily freedom. Uh, and and it's one of those things that maybe me, you, and Dave Baker can't understand it, but it's something they understand. And I'll, I'll leave you at this. I was thinking about Cher. Cher ain't got no use for me, you, or Dave, but she might like Josh. How old is he? 25? So look at her. I mean, she's an independent female. So when you're an independent female, uh, a lot of times they vote Democrat. Y'all have a great weekend. Thank you, David. I don't understand. I mean, and once again, I'm not a female. I mean, I, I'm not. So, so I, well, I know exactly what I'd do if I. No, I don't have any idea. It's like African American. You know, if I were an African American, but I'm not. I mean, I'm a white dude. I'm a white Southern dude who has this conservative uh, and rural disposition on life. I, I don't apologize for that. It is what it is. But, but I don't understand if a female out there believes that. The party that supports a woman being allowed to have an abortion the day before the baby's born, that party also supports the right of a man to compete against women. And I'm talking about a biological male. I mean, you call it transgender, gender dysphoria. A biological male is allowed to compete against biological females in high school and junior high school athletics or college athletics for that matter. And that's your party? I mean, I, please, I mean, I'd love to hear females call in and explain to me. I mean, if the Republican is anti-woman, 
And the Democrats believe it's okay for a woman to have an abortion the day before the baby is to be born. And they also believe the other about competing in organized sports. I, I just, for the life of me, don't, what am I missing about women? I mean, I obviously don't understand the modern woman. Um, I, I just, I don't get that. But once again, I, I'm not here saying, well, how dare a woman? No, I, I, you know, you have a right to decide. You have every right that I have. You're entitled to make your decision based on the way you hash out things internally and externally for that matter, just as, as I do. But how do you get there? I mean, how do you believe that party is more supportive of the cause of womanhood than the Republican Party is? I mean, we can debate six to 12 weeks. I mean, we can debate rape, incest, lie. I and mean, I get all that. I mean, that gets, that gets real complicated. That falls under the lively, the, the living is messy um, category as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'll never do this and I'll always do that. No, you won't. If you live 60 years old, you realize you lied to yourself. Sometimes you'll do this. Sometimes you'll do that. And you'll always try to do this and you'll always try to do that. But, but I love these young people who say, I'll never do that. And I'll always do this. Okay. Okay. As long as there are fastballs down the middle, you, you probably will. But the first slider or curveball that you have to swing at in the dirt, things change. And I just don't understand how, how women believe that the Democrat Party is more supportive of liberated womanhood than the Republicans are, unless it's just messaging. The, the Republicans suck at messaging. And that's why people like Vivek Ramaswamy interest me. They bring a very unique perspective. And a, and a little bit, you know, uh, I don't want to say in your face, but unapologetically unique. Let's go to the phone. Here is Daphne. Good morning. Good morning, guys. I was listening to your conversation with Alan Wilson. Uh, I understand uh, parents not wanting their college-aged uh, 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 daughter to have to compete against a transgender but where is the concern for that child that sits in a public school who cannot afford, their parents can't afford to send them to a private school? Where is the concern for that four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old that is held captive for seven hours listening to the propaganda of you playing with Jen? You don't need to be a boy. You're more girl. Where is that concern? That child cannot walk out of the classroom. A college-age child or a high school-age child can quit the sports, but that little child has no choice. So tell me, is it because that the majority of the young ladies that are going to college now have parents that sent them to private school, and now those parents are having to worry about the same thing that the parents who couldn't afford to send the kid to the private school. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. I don't have any idea. I'd love to know the answer to this, and there are people out there that may know. I'd, I'd love to know how much of those sorts of things are happening in our school system. I mean, I understand the theorizing and the hypothesizing about, you know, um, what is allowed to happen, what could happen, what eventually may may happen. How much transgenderism and gender dysphoria are our kids encountering? I mean, is it being promulgated by leadership within a school district? I mean, I understand, you know, I'm somewhat of a conspiracy theorist. I'm very cynical toward government. 
So I would be the, the one that probably believes it quicker than anybody. But but where's the evidence? I'm not saying there is or ain't. That's another word for isn't. Um, I'm just <laughs> right. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, we, we we the kid is trapped in a school where he's being taught gender dysphoria is normal and and transgenderism is to be embraced. How do we know that? I mean, I don't. I don't. I'm not saying we don't know that. But but where is the evidence that in South Carolina kids are being exposed to the mindset of gender dysphoria? The ah. Uh, the, the, the complicated understanding of transgenderism. I'd, I'd love to know the answer to that. I think you can better formulate your opinion because once again, um, we're talking about lawsuits and legalities and legislation. There's still a where the rubber hits the road kind of scenario. What are our kids engaging and being confronted with where the rubber hits the road? Take a break. Back in a few. Time for our Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia, 843-661-0937. I want to thank our good friends at Pepsi of uh, Florence, uh, provider of all Pepsi products here at Wake Up Carolina and community broadcasters, Celsius, Gatorade, Fast Twitch, all the Pepsi products you would expect. Rev and I have our stash cooler here he had, <laughs> we do. Um, from the uh, from the fellow employees because we think we special around here. <laughs> So here's my question. You ready? Uh, extra prize, by the way. Yeah, we got an extra prize. Yeah, uh, go, go through that. Yeah, I was going to add this, the fact that uh, we are going to throw in a set of meal tickets for the 41st Annual Florence Creek Food Fest that's going on uh, this weekend. So if you win the trivia, you have to be able to come by and get your tickets today so you can enjoy your your meals from the Greek Food Fest. So not only the, the traditional prize sponsored or brought to you by Pepsi of Florence, which is a couple of Takes Mondays to Make Friday's t-shirts and a six-pack of Pepsi product, also got some Greek food waiting on you that you can drink your Pepsi product and eat your and go. eat your Greek food. So we're talking about female and male sports. Um, I'll ask you a question, Rev. Mm-hmm. Is the is the is the male more dominant in speed or strength? Speed or strength? Yeah. Is, is the male? I mean, physically, than, on average, on stronger, average? more strong, or more fast than the female? Probably both. Okay, I mean, I know they're both, but I mean, what would be more? I mean, oh, the, oh, I got you. Um, does the does prob- the male have a bigger advantage prob- in strength? Probably strength. Okay, would I, be, I would, would agree. Be my that. guess. I mean, so, I so here's my question. You ready? Mm-hmm. Who is the fastest? I mean, we're talking about the hundred meters. Who is the fastest woman in history? Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Who is the fastest female ever? Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Do we have a call? Hi, you're on the air. Do you know the answer? Answer to what? Trivia. Yeah, I saw that phone ringing <laughs> okay. in the background Call for a long time. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Sorry about Fastest that. Fastest female ever. Hi, you are on the air. You know the answer? Yeah, I think her name was Jackie Joyner. Uh, should we or should we not? Oh, that's. I, I, Let's do. I, I feel. I feel giving. It's Florence <laughs> Griffith Joyner. Yeah. Uh, 10.49 of the 100 meters. Who is this and where are you calling from? Are you there? Yes, David Brown in Florence. Okay, David, congratulations. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for calling. Um, Florence Griffith Joyner ran a 10.49 meters. Um, Usain Bolt ran a 9.58 meters. Usain Bolt ran... Uh, at about 12.4 meters per second. I mean, think of that. Bolt, Bolt wow. ran at about 12.4 meters per second when he ran a 9.5, 800 meters. So basically, 
He's a second faster than Florence Griffith Joyner, who ran a 10.49. So he would have beat her at 100 meters by about 12 meters. I mean, that's a mm, lot. Yeah. I mean, that's a substantial difference. So, I mean, a meter is a little, what, 39 inches-ish, somewhere there about. So he would have beat her 13 yards in a 100-meter dash. I mean, I'm trying to break it down like good old country yeah. boys. We figure in yards and... And, um, and you're also illustrating part of what the issue is we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, and I didn't obviously. have time to see who would be stronger than the others. The phone's ringing like crazy yeah. on the other line. 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, yeah, Florence Griffith Joyner, 10.49, um, fastest woman in history. Kind of interesting. It was 1988 when she ran um, that time. And 2000, I think 16, when Usain Bolt ran a 9.58, 100 uh, meters in football, it's the 40-yard dash, you know, or the 60-yard. I think in some of the combines, they do a 60-yard dash. Um, the 100-meter dash is not a big deal when it comes to how good a football player you will eventually be, but it is quite the um, quite the metric for who is the fastest human um, ever, and that, I guess, honor belongs to Usain Bolt. And I was trying to remember, because the caller had said Joyner, there's Jackie Joyner, was that, are they sisters? Jackie, or? Jackie Joyner Kersey, I think was her name. Uh-huh. I mean, it, we, we, we did a favor. I mean, it, it wasn't the right name because it's Florence Griffith Joyner. Yeah, it was close. But, but the name Joyner, and who's keeping up with women's sports anyway? Uh, <laughs> I'm joking around with that. We are. Yeah, that, that'll We're make trying. me real popular with our with yeah, our females. Nice. I mean, you damn women are voting for the, the wrong party. <laughs> you deserve to be criticized. You deserve to be kicked to the curb. You're voting for the wrong party. You, you got to get with it and start voting for the party that tries to save the unborn and keep your daughters from being beat up in – in, in high school athletic events. I mean, you know, who wants to, if you're a female athlete, what fun is it to compete against somebody bigger, stronger, faster, and biologically, I don't want to say superior, that's unfair, biologically stronger and faster. How about that? I, mean, that, I, I about said superior, and that would have been quite the insult oh, no. to our females. Um, <laughs> it, I, I don't understand it. I mean, I, for the life of me, do not understand why the woman considers the, the Republican Party to be the anti-woman party. And and I heard this yesterday. I watched CNN a little bit yesterday because I wonder if they're going to talk about the Durham report. Obviously, they aren't. If they aren't doing it by now, they're not going to do it at all. But um, they well, were talking will this, about... Will this, I'm sorry, but will this next election be more of a referendum on that? Because I, this I stuff know. has really gone on to, to, to steroids but, in but the it, last couple but, of but years. But it's still women's health. I mean, yeah. you know, CNN's talking about women's health. You know, there were a couple of senators from South Carolina on CNN talking about, you know, what the Republican senators did yesterday. Uh, with a six-week ban, I'll tell you this. I mean, if I'm running the GOP, I'm not. But if I were, I would make it almost impossible for a Republican candidate to run without offering the exemption of rape, life, or excuse me, uh, rape, incest, or life of the mother. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Do we have a call? I think so, Chris. Okay. Chris in Lada. Hello, you're on the air. Yeah, um, can. Uh I'm not going to say where I'm, other county I'm from, but uh, the uh, I, I've lived in South Carolina all my life. I've called in before, but uh, we've got two school districts in South Carolina. You were talking about transgenderism. Uh, we've got two school districts in South Carolina that have already adopted. Now, one of them's looking at maybe some people are trying to push to get them to unadopt it, but as their official curriculum, you got two school districts that have accepted EL education. Now, I'm not to my SEL. I'm to my EL out of a group out of North Carolina. 
and they have in their DEI, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. Now, you and I would probably prefer the old DNI, which is Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. Now you're talking. This is the other DEI. Yeah. So but, what does uh, that mean? I mean, what does that mean where, where rubber hits the road, so to speak? I mean, I understand the acronyms, and I understand the politicking of it, and I understand what Fox says and CNN says. But but when you when you when when you when you say that, what are you, exactly are you saying as it relates to the kid in the classroom? What is that kid encountering that you nor I did? Yeah, let me explain to you about the. Um, and I apologize, I'm rubbing, uh, riding on the interstate, uh, talking on the phone. Uh, it's got open grade friction course, so it may be a little bit loud. Okay. Uh, so the um, what's what's going on is the the, the EL education. They have a uh, group in their day, it's a period called CREW. And CREW is where they go to discuss various topics. So open in, it can be open-ended. The, the teacher will prod and poke a little bit to, you know, get them talking or, you know, hey, how's it going? And sometimes they do homework or whatever it might be. But a lot of times it's an opportunity to uh, talk about, they circle up and talk about what's going on in life. And then... If you look at EL Education, I can send you the links. You can go look at it. You can look it up, EL Education Foundation. Look up the crew. Welcome to crew. They talk about stuff like white, uh, um, white privilege. They talk about transgenderism, DEI. They tell you exactly what they what, – what they tell you exactly. Now, the school districts will tell you, well, we don't teach that part of the curriculum. I said, well, it's, it's embedded. They said equity. It literally says – I hate to use the word literally now, but – it literally says it's embedded in their curriculum. Equity is embedded in their curriculum. And so is everything to deal with that kind of stuff. So what you have is it gives them the opportunity, gives the teacher the opportunity, because here's a perfect example, Ken, and I, this is a little bit different topic. But my, my daughter came home the other day, and they were talking about um, the Great Depression. And there's a lot of things, you know, you can learn about the Great Depression, you know, especially the uh, you know, rise of FDR and whatnot. But they were talking about that, you know, a lot of it was good information historically. One of the questions went in there and talked to one, well, one of the paragraphs in the test or whatnot that they were covering uh, or sections was saying, you know, a lot of uh, minority groups, a lot of the women and everything during that time were already oppressed, and, you know, or under, underserved. And now there's a lot of truth to that because, I mean, Jim Crow, there's a lot of truth to that. And it said when the depression hit, it hit them harder. And it, it named out, you know, um, uh, Asian Americans, uh, blacks, uh, women. Okay, what it <laughs> then it, the question? One of the follow-up questions to the to that section that 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 the article that they were reading about history said, what is one of the groups that was not uh, uh, was not uh, 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 I guess uh, segregated against or uh, uh, was not oppressed. Uh, not oppressed. And it said white men was one of the answers. What, so is what they got out of that supposed to be, is the best thing they can get out of that is, hey, everybody was oppressed but this one group? Or should it be, so, hey, the real truth is these people already had it hard, and just FYI, it did hurt them harder, and that is the truth. But if what they if they if one of the key things that they pulled out of that they want the kid to remember is so much that, Hey, just FLII, one of the groups that really wasn't oppressed that much was white men. <laughs> and my wife just got all livid when she it was she's and she's pretty laid back, but she got all livid when she heard that because she's like, well, that gun. I mean, is that what that they, she goes? You know, she was one of the main groups. She's a woman. She's okay. But me and you, uh, we were not. 
just FYI. That was what, so what I'm saying is that came directly out of um, the AL education. I got you. Correct and that you. happened in and the classroom. That happened. Oh, I, she brought it home. I watched. I looked at it. And here's another thing about the uh, transgenderism. We, you know it's coming. You know it's there because it's in the public libraries. And you can look in the corner. I can send you proof of this. It's because uh, um, my, my wife shared it with her mother and father-in-law who were up in, up in the northern state uh, to give them an idea of what's really going on. You know, because they used to be former educators. And they just, they, they got the, blind, the blinders on, okay, because they vote Democrat. But the, it is there. I can, you give me it, I can probably send it, you tell me which email you want me to send it to, I'll send you these things. Get back with but Josh now, and get his email. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. I would like to review that. But, but, but I, I guess the point that I'm trying to raise is, and this goes to the debate. I mean, let's say hypothetically that we win the debate on gender dysphoria. The conservative America convinces the majority of us, you know, the people who live here, that gender dysphoria is a mental illness and needs to be dealt with accordingly. We win that debate. But while we're winning the debate, academia and and the media or, or you know, I mean, academia in general have the authority to do this. I'm the Department of Education, uh, school boards around the country, um, administrators around the country. And that's the danger of where we're headed, guys. I mean, this goes back to the monolith. I mean, the media has become so dominated by liberal thought. Academia has become so dominated by liberal thought. And and while we may be winning the public debate of gender dysphoria, and a lot of Americans believe that it is somewhat of a mental illness, there is only two two genders, there's an imposing of an agenda. In, in other words, the Republicans give too much credit to winning the debate. You know, I showed them, didn't I? You know, I won that debate. Did you see how silly I made that person seem when they said gender dysphoria was, you know, not a mental illness? But but the next thing you know, you wake up and gender dysphoria is normalized. Transgenderism is in the face of our of our children. Yeah, okay, we won the public debate, but but academia drove home an agenda. And and that's that's where I think Republicans need to understand. There there's a fundamental difference in winning an argument and imposing your beliefs. And the left has done a phenomenal job, maybe winning the argument, maybe not, but imposing their beliefs. And I was reading something by Elon Musk the other day about George Soros, the smartest investor in politics. I mean, Soros kind of um, is, is arbitrage is what it is. I mean, he finds these, these, these seats that nobody pay attention to, nobody donates money to, but they have um, overweighted authority. Some of these DAs, you've heard these um, Soros DAs. Soros district attorneys and what he does is arbitrage and say hey you know I can spend a half million dollars on a DA's race in New York City and get far more bang for my buck than spending five million on a senate race in Pennsylvania I mean if I want to you know this progressive agenda this liberal agenda that that I believe in and want to see America fall for I mean the way to do it is to find and once again it's arbitrage you know how much money is it going to take to make sure I win this race uh, if I spend a half million dollars in a DA's race, I increase my likelihood from 50% to 94%. So why not do that? And that's the imposing of a belief system. That That's not winning a debate. I mean, Soros is not interested in even having the debate. I mean, why would I have a debate on gender dysphoria when I can put in place, you know, um, law enforcement officials, which is what DAs are, you know, legal authorities, that, that want that progressive agenda advanced. So, so yeah, we're losing the public debate, but I'm spending $25 million a year 
to impose a belief system, to impose an agenda. That's what the left has done far more effectively than the American political right. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number as we wind down another week, another week's edition of Wake Up Carolina. And I wanted to mention this again because I consider this a big takeaway uh, from the show earlier about the Seinfeld voter. You think that the Seinfeld voter, who, who you reference a lot on this show as it relates to their paying attention to being engaged in politics, you think they may be paying attention to some of these things now and as it relates to the FBI and the whistleblower and different and the Durham report? I, the, the, no, I don't think they understand the Durham report. I mean, they, they've not read it. They're not going to read it. But they're not going to read executive summary. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing from people who normally don't talk about it. Hey, did you read where the FBI may have tried to help Hillary Clinton? I mean, that's kind of the takeaway. And once again, you and I would get deeper in the weeds on that. A lot of our debates are deeper in the weeds on that. But yeah, I think there are a small percentage of Seinfeld watchers hearing and talking about the FBI helping Hillary beat Trump. I mean, I'm not saying it's not that simple, but they're not going to dig a lot deeper. They're just going to hear the highlights and the headlines. They're not going to read the Durham report. They don't even know what the Durham report is. They just heard... That, the, that, that there's some news out there that the FBI tried to help Hillary beat Trump. And, and they're going to say, ah, that, that's not right. I mean, the FBI shouldn't do that. I mean, that, you know, a little bit like what I said, I expect the Clintons to do that. I expect the Trumps to do that. I mean, they're politicians. That's what politicians do. But the FBI? Really? Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff in Florence will help us wrap up the week. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> hey, guys. Um, you mentioned earlier about the um – uh, the issues with women and the, the issue with Trump, like just uh, I'll, I'll say this. Abortion is is going to play a major role in the next election. Uh, still a percentage of women, Republican women also uh, don't like the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And also you have the uh, this transgender issue. You would have drawn a bubble map. It's not a big deal. It's not a big issue. I know it's trying to be made one, but it's really not. So Roe v. Wade is going to be the biggest weight for women coming up in the elections. And another thing about George Soros and the DA thing, how is that any different from uh, super PACs jamming school boards with conservative candidates? That's probably the same. It's arbitrage-driven. I mean, Soros is probably the smartest investor in American politics today. He probably gets more bang for his buck than anybody else who contributes to the American political system. What is his agenda? I've never figured out. I mean, he's he's not a Uh, citizen, is he? Or is he? He's an anti-American. The Koch brothers, uh, you, you honestly think that the Koch brothers are less influential than George Soros. Ah, yeah. I think Soros has done a much better job of maximizing his financial involvement in politics than the Koch brothers has. He's got, once again, he's got more bang for his buck than anybody who's contributed to American politics, and that includes BlackRock or or, or Vanguard. I mean, I think think Soros is a really smart man with a lot of money who knows where to invest and make a difference. Yeah, I would would challenge, I I would just tell you to go look at the Koch brothers, and, and they do things in the dark. Um, the like, let's put it this way: the packing of the the Supreme Court, um, the they received 1.5 billion dollars of unregistered donations to help uh, conservatives get elected to the Supreme Court. You're aware of that, right? I, mean, I, 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 I would question that. that number. I mean, that's an MSNBC number. I mean, it's a lot of money, no doubt about it. Jeff, we got to take a break. Hope you'll yeah. call Monday, and um, and we'll continue these. 
you know, disagreements we have over the, over <laughs> yes, the year. Hey, enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.